Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Movies in a Podshell podcast, the podcast which takes a theme. This week's theme is loss of innocence, sad people that used to be innocent that are now lost it and they're angry and upset. I don't think it's got anything to do with it really. I'm joined as always. He's big time baby, but you can call him John. How you doing John? I'm so not big time. Well, you are to me, man. You're, you're big time to me. Do you know, uh, do you know what's the reference? Uh, I don't actually know what the reference is to. Is it just Cruel Intentions? It's from uh, Stand By Me, actually. It's uh, the bit where Kiefer Sutherland... Oh, the the and he's like, with the knife, kids, he's like, this is big time. Oh, this is big time, yeah. baby. What a voice. Kiefer what a Sutherland. Voice. I, it's, yeah. it's weird. When he was young, he still looked about 40. He, like his face is such a like distinctive features he's 19 all, mate he was 19 yeah, in stuff he like looks me. way older but anyway we'll get into that jamie how are you and what have you been watching i'm all good uh, as you know uh, we're a week late and so i apologize to all the listeners for that we're a week late because i was in france i got back to france and i got back to france got back from, I, I don't live in france um i got back from france a bit off more than i could chew i thought you know what we'll get this we'll get this in the bag and I just couldn't. I got back to work. There was too much going on, and I just couldn't. I, I couldn't, John. So Did you watch that's what I've been up to mainly. Lots of French cinema while you were there. Oh, we oui, we oui, we oui. loads. Uh, no, not not <laughs> not no, no, no. I did watch a thing. I, the only thing I watched, um, and I have watched some stuff. So we'll go into what I've been watching. But when I was in France, I was just watching anime. Okay. <laughs> so why not? So watching a bit of One Piece, which is uh, yeah, I'm. I'm about episode 20 into the 1,100 episodes that there are or something like that. Um, and I watched a new anime called Spy Family, which was good. Um, so, yeah, no, that's that's pretty much all I've been doing. And then I got back and this this week I've managed to watch a few a few little bits and pieces, which is good, which we'll talk about in a second. What about you, John? What have you been doing? Well, the worst thing for me was Jamie was away and I had to go on my own to see... Pining, the... pining for me. Yeah, I had to go on my own to see... It was the re-release of the direct edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Because I know how everyone really cares about this. No, it was out for literally one weekend um, or a week, pretty much. So I went to go and see that and I really enjoyed it. And I, I was saying to Jamie off air, I literally... I The first 40 minutes of that film is so ingrained in my brain i don't know why but probably because it is quite a slow film and as a kid that was probably my attention span the first 40 minutes then it tapered off but i just loved it they've done a really good job of the restoration they've redone the sound mix it was all 7.1 atmos all that all that jazz but it just looked genuinely looked amazing for a film from 1979 but a film that was rushed out in 1979 the director's cut is actually shorter than the theatrical cut because when it when it came out it wasn't ready it didn't have any chance to re-edit the film after the preview screening. So these are basically the fixes of the film. And they did this in 2001 for a DVD. And when they did the DVD, the special effects were only redone in standard definition, not in HD. So then all of a sudden when Blu-ray came out, they couldn't release it. And now 4K is out and they couldn't release it. So this time they've restored the whole film or this, the effects were done in 8K. So they future-proofed it for the next... Sounds a bit like a Star Trek debacle, though. Does well, it work? John, does it work? Yeah, it does. It does. Like, what, what if, and what if you haven't got access to the old one? That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Yeah, but the difference is you can still watch any version you want, and that's why no one complains. Ah. So it's like, you know, with, with Blade Runner, you've got... If you buy the Blu-ray of Blade Runner, there's seven cuts, <laughs> which is nuts. But you, there's seven versions of that film you can watch, and whichever one you think is your final cut, you can watch as your final cut. No problem. And then, unlike with Star Wars, where you are forced to watch only the Lucas cut unless you 
look at fan edits or you know was with these star trek films they're basically you can watch again whatever version and that's i like that because sometimes i do quite like watching the original one and now i've seen the re-release directors one i like that too but i love the fact yeah. that the, the just stuff like you know when recordings sound like they've been done in adr so when they've dubbed it after because it's like really clean it's not it's from yeah. the set it's just been done well but then i remember reading that when i read a behind the scenes book on the film and a lot of the stuff was dubbed over because the sets were quite noisy because they had like um, monitors and yeah. stuff going. And it's like, it's horrible, isn't it? You, you see a lot of that in like Star um, Wars Italian, well. Italian giallo. So like what, the films are like mostly in Italian. And so then they'll they'll dub over the American accents and it just it sounds way. You, you can just tell it's someone in yeah. a booth just, doing it just talking out. Do you know the question act- I've got though, John? Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, go, go on. on, go on. You had something exciting to say. Go on. No, all I was going to say was, and this made me laugh like ages ago. When um, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, when Hugh McGregor was doing the promotional material for Obi Wan Kenobi, I sent you a stat that I never knew before. Every single line, apparently, of Attack of the Clones was dubbed because the uh, cameras, the original HD cameras, had like massive generators to make them work. Like they were really, really noisy. So the entire film is dubbed over. Now that film's known for having notoriously wooden and pretty rubbish acting, but if it's then dubbed over as well, after it's already been flat, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? It's insane, isn't it? Because it's almost like those Star Wars films, they just came out at a really unfortunate time when technology was in that particular place and they it was were trying to yeah yeah they were playing around with these new things which isn't like the new things we see now which is um what's it called the vision or whatever it's called uh, uh the volume the, the volume yeah the, the thing is though like george lucas always pushed the boundaries like when star wars came out it wasn't really ready for that technology that was such a leap and to be fair the prequels are a massive leap like it's aged poorly but at the time it was still the best of anything you'd ever seen at that point and that's the thing to remember. Yeah. But it's d- like um, Harryhausen stuff, isn't it? Like yeah. the, the the sort of Jason the Argonauts and stuff. Back then it was like, oh my God. Yeah. And now it's like, wow, the stop motion does look terrible compared to something like Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, um, it's, and- it's just one of those things, isn't it? It's just, it, it's just dated. But the one thing I will say is the reason why the Hollywood blockbuster as it is now exists is solely because of what Lucas... Or, or like, well, for better or worse, but these special effects films is because of Lucas because he proved that you can yeah. have a digital... Or the Marvel films would not have happened without Star Wars prequels. Maybe this will make you hate them. But like, genuinely, if you think about it, that whole setup of how they are filmed, how they are edited, how it's yeah. all put together is literally from lucas's setup and also interesting thing on lucas he invented the technology for photoshop he invented the technology for online digital editing did he he like well i say he he invested in the companies that yeah. produced that so the whole setup of this podcast would pretty much literally be non-existent without like what Our he podcast, did it wouldn't it wouldn't exist i'm saying no i'm saying a lot of technology we use to promote the podcast oh, damn like but anyway that. that was a long Thank old you. rant but yeah. i did want to just say though i did want to ask you Sorry. so um star trek the motion picture is sitting at a six point four on IMDb, which I don't really go by Harsh. usually. But tell me about that. What's is it, is it a good film? I asked you this the other day. Um, I think first of all, if you don't particularly like Star Trek, I don't think you're going to get anything out of it. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just one of those things where it's basically um, it's intellectual sci-fi, John. It, I a hundred percent though. You take the mic. Like it is, and it, it's it is another one where it's questioning like what does it mean to be human? 
what's it mean to, to to relate to feelings and emotion all those things and we're going to discuss all this maybe in, in in an episode or two and very similar to when we talked about westworld very similar to when we talked about blade runner but it just does it with star trek characters and it's a lot about accepting aging and how times have changed and how people can't let go of things so like kirk's not the captain of the enterprise anymore and he and he brings it back and then he's constantly having like fights and struggles because he's trying to prove that he's still the young buck when he's not he's the older guy and he should be more responsible it's it's yeah it's just it's aged like a fine wine because the special effects and everything were really good for the time and it's and the score is gorgeous and there is some like good writing in there but the problem of the film is it still feels very slow it's only about two hours and ten minutes but it feels longer. Do you know what I mean? Like it is one of those films. Ten minutes is a quite a hefty length for back then. <sighs> it, it is. No, but it's 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 trying to f- copy the pacing of two thousand one Space Odyssey. There's no two ways about it. But the reason it holds a special place for me is Jerry Goldsmith go- score, but also it's directed by Robert Wise, who directed The Sound of Music, West Side Story, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The Sound of Nudic? Is music, that, is that sorry. Some, is, that, is, the sound of, is that like some X-rated version of Sound of Music that I didn't even know existed? But what an, an amazing repertoire of films. That guy then came and did a Star Trek film. It's just amazing. Like, it was such a big it's deal. It's like Tarantino going to do a Star Trek film. And it was, really did. it was the highest grossing Star Trek film for a very long time. It really was. Like, it, it smashed it at the time. It oh. went way over budget. But... I really enjoyed it. I think 6.4 is harsh. I'd honestly say it probably would be around a 7. I don't think you, I could argue much more. But it's one okay. of those films that seems to be getting critically reassessed all the time. It went from being one of the worst, inverted commas, Star Trek film to comfortably starting to like rise up there. But it's not an action film. And the second one is the action film and is the more character-driven, whilst this one's more plot-driven. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and, we'd, we'd, and we would suggest, I say we... John John would suggest that if you really did want to get into Star Trek, you're best off starting at the Wrath of Khan, really, aren't you, John? Yeah, if you're into the, if you wanted to start the films, that is, and or if you watch the series and like that's that's the one that's like an all rounder. If you don't like Trek, you can watch that and still get into it. It's one of those. It's a bit like yeah. Aliens. Like mo- even if someone doesn't particularly like Alien, they nine times out of ten will like Aliens just because it's a good action adventure film. Well directed. Anyway, that's probably yeah. We should move on. This is not far too long of a podcast, but it could be science fiction. But um, just quick one from me on on other things I've watched that I think you might be watching too. I've watched Echoes on Netflix, which is like the latest one based on a book. It is uh, a TV show. Um, It's TV show. Please Google it immediately so I can say the name of of the lead actress. I think it's Monaghan. She plays. um, uh, She. She's playing twin Michelle Monaghan. Michelle Monaghan, great. She's a um, Tom. For those who can't remember, in the Mission Impossible films, she's Tom Cruise's wife who he settles down with in the third one, and then she comes back in the other ones, right? So she does, yeah. And yeah, she basically it's uh, only to be referred to as Tom Cruise's wife, yeah, not her a- own character. Absolutely. So there's a uh, it's a <laughs> it's a psychological drama thingy. So basically, there's a setup for someone's gone missing, and it's her twin sister, and then you find out very quickly, like this is in the trailer, that they swap every year. So they get themselves in situations, then swap lives. So you're That'd trying good, to wouldn't it? So you're trying to constantly work out what the hell has the other one been doing, how they got to this point. The score is really similar to do you remember when we talked about yellow jackets, it's that really uncomfortable Yeah. Like all that stuff. It's very similar. It's not the same composer, but it's the guy who did the score for um uh, 13 Reasons Why but anyway that's been good 
even better on Netflix at the moment, which everyone's raving about. So no news here, which is Sandman. Sandman is very, very oh, good. This is on my high on my list. Yeah, it's Neil Gaiman. I loved American Gods, the book. I've not actually watched the series for some weird reason, but um, I've seen the season one of American Gods. It's decent. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the, not read the book. The book. Are, together, John. Boom. We've seen it all. Yeah, that's um, it. But yeah, it's, I it's, love Neil Gaiman. Yeah, just the way he integrates mythology and like, this is no news for anyone who's done it before, but Sandman initially in the comics, like it used to have Batman and everyone in it, it was very much part of the DC universe. And then when they've kind of redone it, it's kind of completely taken it out of the DCEU and it's just its own thing. Well, so, yeah, well, I don't, I don't think it was, um, it wasn't big enough to nah. stand on its own essentially. Because um, it was part of, uh, I believe it was part of DC's Vertigo line. I so think so, yeah. The Vertigo right. stuff was generally um, like offshoots of its own sort of like spin-offs and then you'd bring in Batman and stuff like that, which is, yeah. It's, it was, but then it kind of ran on its own. Yeah, it was one of those where it kind of says, it's happening over there. Do you know what I mean? Like that world's yeah, over there. It's but, great as but, well. But, but we're, we're playing on. But no, it's very good. And I'm sure I've not read the graphic novel, but I'd like to go back because I'm sure there's some images they are showing me and it looks like a comic frame and I'm pretty sure... It's doing like it's Snyder does fantastic. with Watchmen and that stuff. But um, the, the only thing I will say is um, the Sandman himself is supposed to be like a monotonal, very hard to understand character. And he's like a higher being. So he looks down on humans. So he's quite miserable. So the first episode, it's a bit hard getting on side with the Sandman himself. But yeah. I'm now three episodes in and it is one of those where you need to give it a few. Don't just go off the first one. But there is some brilliant um, uh, supporting actors in there. Charles Dance is in the first episode. Love him. Charles Dance. Oh, and is it? No, I, I'm, I am going to um, uh, a TV and comic con thing next week in Birmingham. And he's going. Oh, is it? And I wanna... Who are you going there with? My dad. But right, good. I that, want, was, I, that was the only answer I would have accepted. I want to quiz uh, Charles Dance all about Alien 3 and David Fincher. So I love Charles Dance. Yeah, he's great. Charles Dance. I don't know why I said Dance, but anyway, whatever. He's it's Charles Dance, isn't it? Charles Dance. But he's great. He's so good in it. And yeah, there's just a lot of good sporting actors. And Jenna Coleman is Constantine. Um, Excellent. And she is playing a massive cockney, which is so different to her relatively well, well, rather well-spoken character in Doctor Who. So that's good fun. Um, so yeah, I think you'll really enjoy that. It's very much... I'm really excited. Our vibe, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I've, I've read the comics, Saman, and I love it. Um, I would, I would highly recommend if you're looking to get into like Neil Gaiman stuff. I would read um, Neverwhere. Neverwhere is a really good self-contained story. It's a bit like Alice in Wonderland, but for adults. Like it's quite. Is it a book brutal. or a graphic novel? It's a book. Yeah, oh, it's okay. a book. Um, cool. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, just Neil Gaiman's just uh, he doesn't really miss, which is great. Watching anything else, John? Uh, I'm not going to talk about any more Star Trek, but I finished Strange New Worlds and I was very, very happy with how it That's ended. been getting tens. That's been getting tens, yeah. right? People have been absolutely loving Strange I'm New not, Worlds. I'm not sure if if it's ten because I always find it very hard to rate something ten, but it is very, very good. Production values are very, very good. The writing on the whole is good. My only complaint, and I think I may have said it before, is people in the future speaking with very colloquial terms from 2020 seems a bit odd. But they've done that ever since they restarted Star Trek, unfortunately. But aside from that, it is very good. Um, and I, th- I think it could attract yeah. casuals and people who weren't really into it before, which is kind of what you want because the production value is there now and the and the characters are engaging enough and the stories are good enough. And there is a bit of a, um anti-Trump agenda storyline in like the first two episodes, which really upset some Trek fans and like really upset some people. So that was quite interesting. 
Um, they deserve to be upset, don't they, John? It's literally referenced as a point as like, there's this point in humanity when there are all these riots and like, it's like when we saw the worst of people and it shows the Capitol Hill riots. How do you feel? How do you feel about that being included, by the way? People suddenly turning around saying Star Trek is woke is hilarious because one of the episodes in the original series is literally like, it was always woke. Like, it always had, honestly, a very poor relationship with women because the fact they're wearing miniskirts yeah. on the bridge and that stuff, that was awful and that was very 60s. However, they had a whole plot line about their uh, characters who had uh, half their face was black and half their face was white, but then one, uh, the other half of the race had it on the uh, had white on the other side and black on the other side and then it was it was a whole episode about racism without ever talking about racism because you couldn't talk about racism yeah. on tv in the 60s but you could talk about two alien races that had marks either side of their faces and did these things so star trek has always been raising political cultural issues the cast is always diverse as well isn't it cast like, has always got, been always diverse. Got, like, decent like diverse yeah. casting for the for, for when it was like around yeah if that makes sense. i mean admittedly not always native but Back in the original series, it was really important you had a Russian on the bridge because at the time, and also now to be fair, they, they were you know it was during the Cold War, they were in very poor relations. So it was like here's an optimistic future where the Americans and the Russians and the Japanese and everyone's getting on on board. And you know, Uhura being on the bridge as a black woman was like a massive deal back then. Like it was, and yeah. you know that was that was game changing. So it's always we've been, managed to make star trek interesting we really though. have god i'm sorry but it's, it's always been political so people who try and say it's become woke and always it's absolute nonsense the thing they are doing better is they're doing better representation of female characters but they're not doing you know there's no mary sue situation going on for me at all it's an ensemble cast you have episodes where males take the lead you have episodes where women take the lead what you don't have is what you got a lot in the original series was you know the yeoman who's like the captain's helper who would bring him meals and all this stuff and would go missing and he'd have to save it by the end of the episode. And all that's kind of got out the window now because it's just like, it's, it's nonsense. I, yeah. They're just capable. The security officer in the new series is a really strong woman who's very much, for me, uh, influenced by Ripley in Alien. And she's had a bit of a nasty situation. There's a whole episode, basically, that is just like the thing, Alien, Prometheus, Alien Covenant, all those things. And I literally said to Jamie, even if he didn't watch the whole series, I would just air him that episode because it's an hour. It's well, really well done. I'm probably well going to watch the series anyway. Oh, I'm, I'm probably going to watch the series. It's Paramount Plus though, isn't it? So that's another streaming service that I need to get, which it, is annoying. It is. Anyway, far too long about Star Trek on this podcast. It's very, very unlike us. What have you been watching that's been <laughs> probably not far un- cooler? It's not unlike you, it's mate. Not, Always it's not. crowbarring I'm in. so sorry. Right, so, um, I mean, I've been watching old films, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So I watched a film called The Setup, also directed by Robert Wise. 1949. Early 70, days. 73 minutes long. Give me more of this. Um, yeah, this is basically about um, just a, an, an older boxer who doesn't want to take bribes. Um, so he's, he's bribed to go down in X round. Uh, doesn't want to take the bribe, like it's supposed to be a setup, that kind of thing. Um, it's starring Robert Ryan. Um, I actually watched two Robert Ryan films in quick succession. Really good. 73 minutes. It's on the, the HMV Premium Collection. They've got, um, as of uh, the 29th of August 2022, for those listening, there's currently a two for £15 um, offer in uh, in HMV, which is good. Um, I then followed that straight up with On Dangerous Ground, which is also starring uh, Robert Ryan. Um, this was directed by Nicholas Ray. You know I love Nicholas Ray. 82 minutes long, 1951. This is 
um, a noir, um, obviously. It's about a, a cop who's reassigned um, to the country after his superiors find him too angry to be in an effective policeman. So he's got a bit of uh, anger issues. issues. Yeah, just like um, Humphrey Bogart in In a Lonely Place, also directed by Nicholas Ray. Um, yeah, so I watched those two. Um, I also watched Jesus. So I watched um, Videodrome by D- David Cronenberg. So there's a few Cronenbergs that I haven't seen. I'm trying to watch more Cronenbergs. So um, I bought uh, The Fury. No, sorry, that's the Palmer. Sorry about that. I bought Videodrome and I bought Scanners. Uh, Scanners I've heard of, but I've not seen. I tell you, Videodrome, mate. Um, it's wild. Um, it's got James Woods in it and uh, Blondie's in it as well. Debbie yeah. Harry. Um, she's brilliant. Um, absolute. Oh, gorgeous. Love her. Anyway, um, so this is this is a really hard synopsis. So I'm just going to have to read it out because it's really weird. Okay. So um, as the president of a trashy TV channel, so it's basically a TV channel that shows like really racy stuff, like really hyper-violent, hyper-sexual kind of stuff. Um, Max Wren is desperate for new programming to attract viewers when he happens upon a Videodrome, a TV show dedicated to gratuitous torture and punishment, which you don't see that much of, John, so don't worry. Sounds like Saw. Um, yeah, it's like the, orig- like, yeah, the original Hostel. Um, Max sees a potential hit and broadcasts the show on his channel. However, after his girlfriend auditions for the show and never returns, Max investigates the truth behind Videodrome and discovers that the graphic violence may not be as fake as he thought mate like this the, the you know that cronenberg's the king of body horror this is wild <sighs> honestly nuts. this is honestly wild um it gets really really weird sort of towards the last 20 minutes you just like what is going on but i'll give it eight out of ten it was uh, i was thoroughly thoroughly enjoying it um it's yeah it's a banger and then yesterday i watched with nail and i so with did nail and you I, yeah now why is that film quite important, Jamie? Because Harry Van Gorkum told us to watch it when he was on the pod. He he did, and that's that's a very valid reason. But also, think about the characters within it. Who's in it? Uh, Richard E. Grant and, and Paul McGann. And? Oh, Richard Griffiths. So, David Fincher, when he was casting <laughs> for Alien 3, loved that film he tried to cast richard e grant in charles dance's role and the studio said no they picked He'd charles dance that. and uh obviously paul mcgann was then used as uh Golic, who's one of the inmates and then ralph oh i've forgotten the other guy's name brown yeah ralph, ralph brown. brown is uh uh he plays 85 as he's right. known as. And basically, yeah, because he watched that and was like, I want him, him, and him. And he only got two of them, not all three of them. But I love the fact that's a thing. But anyway. Listen, have you seen this film with Nail and I? I have. It's very, um, very bizarre, but I love it. I love the... It co- is go, go so on. quotable. I, like, this yeah. is, is going to be a new favourite for me. So oh, good. I want to watch this in a, with a group of friends because yeah. it's... Ab- like, Richard E. Grant is hilarious in this. Just... The swearing, the, the there's there's a bit in a tea, in the tea room. Basically, the film right is it's directed by uh, Bruce Robinson, who's not really done much else. Um, it's about they're two out of work actors, um, and they are just alcoholics, and they spend their day like in their their disgusting flat, or the unemployment office, or the pub, and then they take a holiday and they go to Penrith, 
Um, it's a mistake that they end up there and they they have no money and they just end up like terrorizing the town really with they they, they end up in this tea room and it's absolutely hilarious like we're millionaires we're millionaires we're gonna buy this place and sell it because they're trying to they're trying to get rid of them it's just it's unapologetically they're horrendous people it's so good um I would highly recommend it. You probably have to have a certain type of sense of humour, I would say, to to get it. But it's, it's very odd, offbeat English humour, I would say. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, irreverent English humour. Like, yeah. but I would say to any American listeners, try it because it's just very. It's it's just yeah. It's really funny. Really funny. I loved it. So we might have to get Harry on to do that film. Maybe. Like, yeah. We need, we need to get Harry back He'd on. We'll ask him. Um. So yeah, and then, and then really just more Sopranos, um, which is still fantastic. And I've been really watching Seinfeld. Seinfeld really clicked for me. Um, obviously, I, I'm a fan anyway, but it's really like towards the late seasons, it's clicking hard. It's fantastic. Better Good. than Friends. You had it here first. I mean, yeah, people said that previously, haven't they? But I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I just think Friends was the more popular because it's more recent. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do they cross over? I don't know. They cross over, yeah, I think so. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, anyway. Uh, one more thing, and I know no one cares, but as we've already talked about with Noel and I, they, Disney are currently working on the 4K remasters, finally, for Alien Resurrection and for Alien 3. I really hope they're doing it for the Assembly Cup, but Jamie always takes the mickey on this part about the really poor rotoscoping and how rubbish Alien 3 looks like the special it's effects. It's Rod Puppets. And the Rod Puppets, correct. But they've gone back through and they haven't they haven't replaced it with CGI, but what they've done is they've gone back and, you know, when you combine all those elements on screen, there's like seven different chemical elements, seven bits of film that have all been spliced together to make those elements, right? Yeah. So one's the background, one's the alien, one's the people, one's this, one's uh-huh. that. What they've basically done is found, find all those original negatives, scan them in, one by Damn. one, reprocess them in the computer, which takes a lot of time, and then they've colour graded it. So it's not going to change the fact it still looks like the motion's weird, but the main thing is it will integrate better within the scene. So it will be as the effects were at that time, but they will be graded through a computer rather than how it used to be done photochemically, and it looks a lot better. You've still got the weird bit, as you always talk about, when it walks up to Ripley, runs across the screen, and then it comes up with a big head, and the big head looks amazing, and then when it goes to the shot previously, and it looks tiny. Yeah. That's not changed, and unfortunately, that is what it is. That was an issue at the time. But the fact that they've gone through and they're rescanning all that stuff, that's what they did with Star Wars in 97. It's a big old job. So I'm, yeah. I'm quite pleased they're doing it. Nice. Good. Did I read that it's a certain Mr. Fincher's birthday yesterday? You did indeed, yeah. 60 so years This old, episode should have been dedicated to him, clearly. And again, 30 years ago, he'd already made his first film. Jesus. Yep. And on that anyway. note, talking about coming of age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, no, this is our loss of innocence episode. Sorry. Yeah, but we could have been a coming of age episode. We, we obviously love a coming of age on the pod because this would have been a third one. But we didn't. We crowbarred in a loss of innocence. Um, and with that... We did Stand By Me from 1986, directed again by Rob Reiner. We've done it twice in a row, damn! In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence. A time after which we are never the same. happened in the summer of 1959. 
It's not twice in a row, is it? Rob Reiner. Yeah, we did Misery last pod. Is that last pod? That was last pod. And I forgot to say... No, it was the one before. No, we had an in the middle of De Palma. We had some De Palma action in between. We had Dress to Kill and and we had And Drive. What have I got? What am I doing? So don't worry. uh, They've had a break and also we're a week late anyway, so it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, they've had a big old break, yeah. Um, John, (laughs) one of my favourite films of all time. Mm -hmm. You'd never seen it because you've never seen any of the films that we do. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. Then I do that. On, I do this on purpose. To be we fair, speak about this all the time. both films I hadn't seen today. I mean, I had. I have some thoughts about the second film, but, uh, no, <laughs> but no. yeah, we've. Sorry, right. go on. Well, just, just, I just want you to tell me about Stand by Me. Okay, Stand by Me. Uh, I think it's some of the best child acting I've probably seen, and I'm going up there Absolutely. with. Absolutely, and we talk about this a lot: child acting and how terrible yeah. it could be. Oh, it can right, carry it can on. be, but I think. Um, they're dealing with a lot of heavy lifting. There's barely any adults in the film. And ironically, I think when the adults are in the film, they almost act like kids. So, like, yeah. there's the guy who has the dog who uh, is at the junkyard site, and he bullies them as much as any is, as the kids bully each other. I think it's oh one of the... Oh, my God. I want to talk about that scene in but a bit. We'll, we'll get there. But, yeah, so, um, essentially, I can't believe Will Wheaton put in such a fantastic performance. Obviously, again, I know him from Star Trek is... Um, a character who everyone normally despises and finds very frustrating, but he's brilliant in this. So essentially, you find out that his brother died. And for me, the film is about him coming to terms with his grief, actually. It's not really about him walking to find... You know, it's, it's a group of friends who all go and set out to find a body they hear about because one of their older brothers has spotted a body in the woods, essentially, isn't it? And yeah. it's it's the classic, it's not actually about the mission it's about the journey and that sounds really pretentious but it is true because it is what happens along the way is more important than actually when they find the body like the finding the body is very much not really a big deal to me by the end of it it's more about what you learn about these people so it's like they're they're 12 and they're just about to join the next level of school i'm not fully up to date with the american education system so apologies but they're worried they kind of won't be friends anymore right they won't have as much time together It's, it's it's simply um a film about a writer who is narrating the film as he goes through and he recounts yeah. a childhood journey with his friends and they about them finding the body of a missing boy but also i thought it was quite clever because it's my first time watch he's reading the paper and he reads an article and um and it says that someone's died and obviously we don't know who that person is at the start because the name gives us no context then by the end of the film you have the context or is that just me being unobservant that's kind of how I read it. Um, I mean, I think that the yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Like he, well, he's writing a book, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the first shot is him in the truck reading the paper, isn't it? So what I thought. Yeah. So when he reads the paper, I don't think it then says my friend's died. It just says a name of someone who's died, and then by the end of the film, I realise that person who died is the person he's, who's his best friend in the film, right? Yeah, that's it. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that was what I was getting at. But okay. um, yeah, so it's there's obviously it's got a lot of big big name uh, guys from the 80s in it. So you've got Keith Sutherland. And who plays the older brother? I recognise him straight away. It's not Tim Allen, is it? It's um, Yeah, well, so River Phoenix's big brother. Oh, Denny. Sorry, John Cusack. Denny. Yeah, John sorry. Cusack. That's who it is. I was, yeah, yeah, I was sorry, just man. like, that's not so, right. That's not right. No, no, yeah. Somewhere John, yeah. John Cusack plays Denny. Yeah, and yeah, like... Again, he seems to be the only person who's nice to his younger brother, Will Wheaton. 
Like his mum and dad, he's he's like the big prospect of he's gonna get out of the small town. He's gonna make it in the NFL. I mean, they don't say NFL, but he's like a big American college football man, college football player, and you know they're fully invested in him, but they're not really bothered about about what about I forgot his bloody name, Will Wheaton's name, Gordy, Gordy. Gordo. So yeah, Gordy basically is the younger brother, and he has a great relationship with his older brother. But he basically starts the film, and he's pretty, he's pretty relaxed, isn't he? Like when you see them in the environment, you've got uh, our favourite um, Corey Feldman from Lost Boys. As, well, he's an he's an eighties eighties icon, really, yeah, as, Corey Feldman as Teddy the Champ. And then you've got River Phoenix as Chris Chambers. I recognised him. He's got such distinctive eyes, hasn't he? Yeah, and then Joaquin Phoenix's younger brother, and then you've got um, sorry, Joaquin Phoenix's older brother. I don't know, and then you've got Jerry O'Connell as yeah, Vern. He's the really scared one, right? I, I can't so see this a is, of him so young now. Jerry O'Connell, right? This was his first ever acting role. So these, so these, so what's important to mention, right? You, you mentioned the kids' performances, and so. For the for these kids, there was never any other four kids that were ever going to be chosen for this. So, Will Wheaton, the the sensitivity and the vulnerability he showed, and the intelligence he showed as a as a young actor, that's why he was picked. Mm-hmm. Corey Feldman. So so let's let's talk about Jerry O'Connell quickly because he's he's the one that's really that's Vern, and so he's the outcast. He was the youngest of the four boys in real life. This was his first ever acting role. Um, so all he'd done is a commercial before this, um, and it was his first ever acting role. Grew up to be an absolute smoke show, by the way. This, this, yeah, he did. This is a good-looking man. Uh, this is a good-looking man. So he he grew up and he did um, your favorite Mission to Mars. Um, oh yeah, Kangaroo Jack. Um, and he's and he's still doing bits and pieces today. So he's he's actually doing Star Trek Lower Decks. He, um, I don't know if that's it's it's that's not a live action one. It's a, it's a comedy one. But yeah, he right he. Um, plays the brother who's he's the youngest one who finds out his older brothers have driven out they've they've stolen the car and they don't want anyone to know they've stolen the car and along the way they found the dead body but they can't tell anyone they found the dead body because they'll know that they've driven the car there and he he overhears this because there's some side plot where he's buried some money underneath his house and he's digging underneath his house Vernon's digging underneath his house to find this pot hilarious this is and then as he does it he starts hearing his brothers talking about this body and he goes to tell the gang and that's how he tells Teddy, he tells Gordy, and he tells Chris. Um, and that's basically the setup of the film, and off they go on their journey. Um, the famous bit I know, knew of this, though, was actually for the Family Guy episode, you know, when um, they go through the Stephen King books. Do you remember it? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I... Yeah, anyway. So um, there's a famous sequence with a train, which is very cruel, and, like... You're, you're putting a face of it on that. I don't know. I just... What's cruel? Um, just the fact that they decided to make the decision to walk across a railway track over a massive bridge over a hundred foot gorge, essentially, didn't they? Yeah. And then I was just thinking, just sprint now, because they were really walking and taking their time at the start. Were they taking their time because the gaps between the wooden planks is supposed to be big, or yeah. were, or were they? Just, I was a bit like, you know, what are you doing? Just get across it. If that was me and I had to do that, I'd sprint across probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So there's a there's a there's a there's a few things to mention. So yeah, this is a book by Stephen King. You mentioned you've seen mm-hmm. this on Family Guy, which is hilarious because most people have seen most stuff on Family Guy because they reference everything, just like South Park. Simpsons used to reference stuff for years, Sim- and years yeah. and years, you know. Yeah. So like at Roadhouse, like everyone knows Roadhouse because Roadhouse. of Family Guy, which is annoying because just watch the film because it's amazing. 
this is um, a Stephen King book. So it's a, from a, no, a novella, um, which is a small book for those who don't know. Um, and it was uh, it's from within a book called Different Seasons, where uh, the in within this book there was four books. There was uh, the Body, which is Stand by Me. There was uh, Apt Pupil. There was uh, the book that was the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a fourth book which escapes me. I can't think off the top of my head. But Makes sense with timings, maybe, because they're all kind of 50s. Or are they all around that period or not? Uh, different seasons yet, yeah, maybe. Who? I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not even going to pretend to know because there'll be Shawshank someone listening fi- to the pod on the internet being like... Wah, 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 wah. But Shawshank like, was 50s, wasn't it? I know, I know Shawshank was, and then Stand By yeah, Me Yeah, well, if, if you know that for a fact, John, That's all good, two. but I don't I'll, know I'll that for a fact, so I'm not going to say it. So, yeah, the... Yeah, so they go on this journey. The kids go on the journey, mm-hmm. and we we speak we were t- speaking about um, Vern being it's his first ever acting role. He's he's amazing, Corey Feldman. So the reason why do you know the reason why he was chosen, the sole reason why he was chosen for this film, was because he was the only boy of that age who could show the anger that that, that his character. Um, he had quite gravelly voice quite early, Teddy. didn't he? We, so to, yeah exactly yeah he did yeah he's got that yeah so he he this was the kind of the they chose him because teddy duchamp he came they're all they all come from these like quite strange backgrounds um but the anger he shows in a certain scene um when you mentioned the the, the man is sort of saying call him his, his dad a loony uh which we'll go into later but that's yeah. that's the reason why they're all they're all chosen in river phoenix again for his his how deep the performance was so it was the cast is amazing really and these these kids go on to do big things most of them and going into like their characters more so than the acts themselves like each of them is like carrying the weight of something so gordy as i mentioned earlier has his older brother died uh in a car accident i think it was but it's a car accident who gordy's brother dies in a car accident. yeah so right? he died he died in a jeep accident and the and the idea for me of the film is the journey is basically he sees finding this body he's upset and he has dreams that he didn't cry at his brother's funeral so he feels like he didn't mourn him properly yeah so when he finds the body how he acts and behaves is because he's kind of reliving the funeral in a different way and, and acting the way he wished he'd acted which is he mourns for the loss and he speaks to him as if he's his brother which is really sad and then you've got with River Phoenix's character, Chris Chambers, he's from a very poor background and essentially he's worried that he'll never leave the town and he's, he's you know... His dad beats him, his dad's an alcoholic, he beats him, he's yeah, a drunk. And he feels um, like the, the school teachers, they already look down on him before he's done anything wrong because of where he's come from. They're not yeah, he's come from a really a poor, a poor background. And it's really yeah. sad he's like, I never thought a teacher would treat me that way. And kind of, you know, pigeonhole me. But if they do, how am I supposed to succeed anywhere else? But what's really sweet is the relationship between uh, Gordy and Chris is they inspire each other. So Chris says, it doesn't matter that your dad's mourning the loss of your brother and he doesn't see you the same way because you're not going to be a college footballer. You're an excellent writer. Again, Stephen King talked about bloody writing in one of his main characters. But anyway, we'll, yep. we'll look past that. Um, you know, you will you will be a great writer. And you should you should follow that because you're good at it. It's like get, God's giving you a gift, and you've got the chance to make something of it. So make sure you do. And then Gordy's saying to Chris, you know, you you can come to college with me. You can do you can do the exams. You can take the things, and it'll be hard for you, but you can do it. And then you'll make something of yourself. And you find out later in the film he does do that, and he works his way up, and he's a lawyer. And when he ends up dying in the film, he stops a fight in a bar, 
and in the film he's like the peacemaker in multiple scenarios where there's fights so it's, there's it's, a lot of foreshadowing for like characters and behaviors right it's bizarre because you usually characters like chris coming from a home like that would be very damaged and therefore very aggressive and and be the one that's sort of but it really like chris is quite extremely sensitive, sensitive. yeah he's extremely sensitive and he and he's always the one that is trying to he he makes peace with we see early on um him making peace with uh teddy because teddy is has something has some deep dark so again his his whole deal is his dad um has has PTSD. he stormed the beach at normandy man well we never he know stormed if he the beach at Normandy, not, man. But if you take it on the basis he did, his dad obviously has PTSD and he's struggling, and he's basically burnt, almost burnt his son's ear off as a form of punishment, and he's like marked at the start. And basically, yeah. Teddy's whole thing is coming to terms with the fact of like his dad. We find out is um, away in a mental institution somewhere, and he's he's ridiculed for it, not by his friends, I might add, but by one of the angry, <laughs> one of the angry. Um, Oh no, it's not. No, sorry, it's not the Cobra. No, it's the owner. It's it's like the supposedly the adult in the room is the one that takes the Mickey out of his dad and talks about why he's back crazy, etc. Which is just really depressing. But anyway, um, and yeah, so basically, Corey Feldman's character has a lot more. It's very different because I'd only seen him in the Lost Boys previously, which is more of like a. It's obviously comedy role, and he's having a bit of fun with it, and it's very tongue in cheek. Yeah, and this is very serious. The Frog Brother. Yeah, so that was nice to see. And then, again, with Vern, his whole thing is he's known as being... They call him a pussy throughout the entire film, like, over and over and over. And He's bullied, isn't he? Like, he's, he's the one that they pick on. Yeah. He, he says that he says the wrong thing or try... He, 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 say he, says he says the wrong the, thing. He says the sensible thing nearly every single time. Yeah, like, every bit does. of advice he gives is like, maybe we should turn back, maybe we shouldn't go and find the dead body. Legitimate advice, great. And he's like, maybe we shouldn't cross the thing where the train's going to go across because that seems like a really bad idea. Funnily enough, He's right. So he's actually very beyond his years. He's probably an overthinker, and yeah. he's you know he's he just acts older, and that was that was interesting. So they have a really good dynamic. But the thing that's interesting is they all develop throughout the film, but also in the way they develop, it's like how they treat each other. So we talked about how Gordy and how Chris kind of egg each other on to not necessarily better themselves, but how to like um, support each other as friends to make sure they achieve what they want to achieve. And then with Teddy's character, I think his whole thing, the relationship, um, is how he's supported by his friends because they will rib each other he needs a lot. That support, doesn't but he? you know he needs that network of friends, and then... it's quite an unhinged performance from Corey Feldman at that age. He was twelve. Yeah, there's a, it's a lot it... probably to be dealing with, and then we haven't even talked about the older bullies, which is basically a lot of them have older brothers. And and this is a yeah a gang called the Cobras and it's Keith Sutherland, Casey Casey Ciamasco. He's back. He's back again. He's back again. So what was he three doing? o'clock high. How many times have I told you all? Close off the podcast now. We don't need your listens and go and watch three o'clock high. <laughs> but then obviously listen to the podcast after. You know what I mean? Case Casey Ciamasco. He was in Back to the Future, and now he's in Stand Which by one Me. Was he in Back to the Future? So he was one of the. He, he's, one he was thugs. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of the thugs. Yeah, he he. This this um the change in his performance in this role actually is brilliant. Did you know it's funny? We're, we're talking about Stand by Me, and I'm talking about Casey Ciamasco now, which is uh, he's such a niche actor that no one really will know. It's almost as niche but, as John going off about with Nine Alien Three. I mean, you know, it's well exactly. Well, I'll... but basically, Casey Ciamasco, he so he did like he had this performance in Three O'clock High. 
um, which I believe was one of his first performances. Um, and it was, he was a bit, he was a complete nerd. And so then he started taking on these different kind of roles. Like he was, he was in Back to the Future 1 and 2. And then he was, he, he did this role in Stand By Me and Young Guns um, after that. So it's, it's quite interesting, really. And uh, yeah, a, a good, a good actor for this for this film but yeah these cobras man they're they're not very nice are they no so like what i like about the cobras is it's very you know what was bad what did they do in the 50s so they ride along in cars with a baseball bat and they just smash letterboxes off the you know like american letterboxes were at the end of the driveway they just smash love them it off. i don't know just with like, a baseball bat with a baseball while bat. great balls of fire is playing yeah. which just reminded me of top gun yeah very much so um so that was that was interesting did you know that so when this film was made Mm -hmm. at the end of the film they had to write in a disclaimer to say that smashing letterboxes and post boxes was illegal (laughs) like like it was like it was legal anyway like how how ridiculous um so yeah i just uh their group are they they only two of them find the body at the start when they busted into the car but then they shouldn't be there because they've only been there because they've stolen the car but when they tell the whole gang for some reason Kiefer Sutherland then wants to go as Ace wants to find the body because they think they'll be famous on the news because it's such a small town like and that's obviously that's why Vern brings the comb yeah uh, because yeah uh, which he loses during the train chase but anyway and yeah essentially they drive and turn up in like the last 10 minutes of the film and there's a really a conversation we've talked about when Jamie says like this is what did you say this is big time right this is big time baby and it's because I um, can't do Keith Sutherland's voice man no it's cool it's voice, so good though. I always I, off 24. topic yeah but I was gonna say was I always upset the fact he never did Batman he could have done older Batman younger Batman Keith Sutherland's voice in the suit would have been incredible I just well instead they sacked David Hayter from Metal Gear Solid and replaced yeah. the voice with Kiefer Sutherland, which has made me sad. But anyway. I do like him in Metal Gear, though. Suits him. Well, David Hayter's better, but anyway, carry on. But anyway. Um, don't be a hater, John. Don't be a hater. But yeah, just um, the main thing is when they when the boys find the body, when the four of them find the body, and then all of a sudden the Cobras turn up, Gordy suddenly found like this backbone. And I should have mentioned earlier in the episode... Uh, Chris got his hands on his dad's pistol and he brings a gun to the for their journey and there's a scene where he fires it outside because he says oh is it loaded so Gordy says is it loaded he's like of course it's not and then bang obviously it then goes off and it is and Gordy's really annoyed at Chris and he's like well we need it because if we go out in the I keep saying out in the woods as if it's a really small journey like it is a very long trek they do it's miles but they're basically saying there might be things in the night and as Jamie's mentioned earlier there's coyotes in there there's like this, this is howling and all this sequence of this sequence of scenes is really really important um so so yeah like so and we see some of the best acting in the whole film like during this during this um so like basically they they eat so they've got no money so they've got no, they've got no money Not, none of them um, brought any food they didn't bring any food um teddy blames it all on everyone else um and Vern coughs up seven cents so they they basically play a game and they they have to send Gord, gordy for gordy for food and so the rest of the lads are sitting in this this kind of like what is it like a mechanics Mechanics it's like a yard, isn't it? Yard, like, where they're not supposed to, watch, to be there. It's like Scrap Heap Challenge kind of 
that's location. it yeah scrap heap no one's gonna know what scrap heap challenges john um, <laughs> Niche. um so yeah so they um so they go for food and so gordy gordo gordy uh, he's walking back um on his own they're on the other side of the fence and then they, they talk about this dog chopper who is a legend and you, and you hear this all the time you when you're a kid you hear like bad stuff about like random neighbors that you don't really know enough about Do you know people... what it reminded me of like you know in home alone he's like oh the guy next door he killed all his ki- he killed all his family and that's why he has exactly. a shuffle at christmas he's, and as a kid you're like makes street. sense yeah he salts the street uh, do you know what the, the the worst one of mine was um there was a neighbor called uh well he wasn't a neighbor he like lived like across the road um and everyone used to refer to him as mad mick um and he used to stand outside at like 6 a.m in the morning doing karate and everyone was terrified of him. Um, no crazy stories about him. Do you know, but, um, do you know what the story actually is? Is probably probably did Tai Chi as a morning chill out. <laughs> like yeah, everyone's he's, like, he's, he's, he's doing like this Aggie karate. It's like no, he's just doing Tai Chi, mate. It's just funny. He's in a piece. His his name actually should have been called Chill Michael, not <laughs> yeah, Mad Mick. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like so this so this guy like the, Gordy's walking back and there's there's a legendary dog and apparently you'd say Chopper Sikkim, which would mean like Chopper get them like bite them. Um, but apparently this dog could hone in on specific body parts. And so the one thing you never, ever want to hear is chopper, sick balls. Yeah. And yeah. so Gordy's walking back with all the stuff in his backpack and he's like, and then, and then basically the guy comes out, chases him. He jumps over the fence and this is where we see this really important moment from, um, from, uh, oh, what's his name? Why do I keep forgetting Teddy. his name? It's hard to remember. Corey Feldman, the Teddy. Corey Feldman's yeah. character is Teddy. There's yeah. so many, yeah, there's so many characters. So yeah, this is where we see this moment from Teddy where this, I, when I was young, so I see, I seen this film probably when I was maybe 13 or 14 mm-hmm. for the first time. And I never realized the gravity of kind of all of the themes and what was going on in the film. And that's that's the beauty of it. Like you've got the camaraderie of the children, but then you've got these lots of like really quite deep things that are going on. Um, and so we see this man start all of a sudden start calling. I know you kids like and effing and jeffing at them. And he says like you, you're the you, you're the one with the loony dad. Like loony, loony. Yeah, he's and like you he, realize he's locked up at blah blah blah. It's like mate, it's he's yeah. literally you're, it's, you're, you're berating a twelve year old. It's very comical, like it's very funny the way it happens, but it's it's really dark. It's really dark. And then he say he says, "What do you say about my dad? Don't ever say anything again." And he's like, "Yeah, he took your hand, head to the ear to the stove. Oh, like yeah. he's a loony. Like just um and like basically just berates this child." And Corey Feldman like loses it. Like and and that there's a there's a couple of pieces of acting I was going to talk about, and that was the reason why he was chosen for the role because he had that anger built up. And do you know what, Corey Feldman. I love him. That he did Lost Boys a year after with Kiefer Sutherland. Obviously, he's Corey Feldman has had a lot of struggles over the years in general. Like just, just in general. Like he, I think he's okay now, um, but he's had a lot of struggles with like drugs, that kind of thing over the years. Mm. And you really do see a darkness from this child, like acting at twelve years old. It's it's incredible, really. It must but have been very hard this, for a lot of those guys though getting that famous that early. I mean, Will Wheaton seemed to. Okay, will we yeah will will and um and the the guy that plays van jerry o'connell they they were fine well a majority, to be honest, well, do you know what majority were but like, yeah majority were fine actually there, there are there are people who struggle like keith southern to be fair like he he really struggled all the way up even when he was filming 24 like he the, one of the reasons one of the seasons um i'm sure I remember at the time he was having like real issues during the production 
and they effectively had to like curtail a season early or change the filming schedules and stuff but this is a long time ago now this is nearly 15 20 years ago to be fair or not quite so but yeah i do wonder if like the child star thing doesn't help with that you know like colin mccorkin as well and and you know imagine being that famous especially in the 80s i feel like a lot was okay in the 80s like anything went especially in hollywood well we'll talk about the next film apparently it was okay in the 90s as well (laughs) yeah but but you know when it's kind of like you know uh, edward furlong's another one that really is the most upsetting story if you like read what happens to edward furlong just completely his life was literally being turned upside down upside down by the time he's 12 13 just being put in situations he should just never have been in and, so, I, and it makes me feel like hollywood just had no duty of care then i don't know if they do now but i just feel well i'm guessing they do now because everywhere has they, to. i think they would now they've but got just, to but you know they just they just but some yeah but sometimes yeah. like even i mean even even um uh lindy lohan yeah. like quite recent really like it's a lot i, of I can't even imagine me- at that age what like what like what that would be like and and river phoenix jesus like he he died. I'm, I'm sure it was at a gig or something. Like he he took a speedball, which is like cocaine and heroin, and yeah. and died at the age of 24, I believe. Really? It's yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is this. Well, no, it's important to be said that because we always say when we talk about child actors, I find it really hard because like it's easy to say oh that child. Macaulay actor's... Culkin. God, well, no, but... why have we not mentioned him? Well, no, we just said that. We did just say that. But I was oh, going to say, I, I don't like it when people say, oh, that child is like rubbish and this, this and that, because it's like... That's me. I say that all I the know, time, but mate. you have to be so careful because you think of people like Jake Lloyd. Jake Lloyd's bullying literally led him to have all the issues he's had. This was, he played Anakin in the first Phantom Menace. Like, all the issues he's had, he will save from that. And, it, and it's just Frosty's like, kids. imagine from being like, um, no, the Cheerios kid, Cheerios. But imagine at the age of like um, 10, being told, like being bullied for that role and it's just never going away because films don't go away <laughs> do you know what i mean like it's always it's gonna all, be do you there. know what mate it's almost like having ginger hair it's almost as bad as oh, that really? but anyway oh, we'll no. move on um <laughs> so after this they eat their food and they sit around the campfire mm-hmm. and they sit around the campfire and they speak to gordy and gordy um tells them a story about a pie contest which is hilarious it's comic book like really funny what i'm not gonna lie that whole sequence did nothing for me like is it just because at 12 years old you find that funny i'm guessing that's the point the whole so the whole the whole point of that sequence so so i'll be honest so they didn't know what to put in in this sequence so like what what would what would 12 year old kids do what (laughs) what would i'm like don't don't slate my film (laughs) what would 12 year old kids do at that age and they would they would talk about like ah who um they were talking about all these super silly things. Like, is so like Mickey's a mouse. Yeah, who's Donald's what's a duck? Goofy. What's Goofy? Yeah, I, what's, what is he? That's obviously fine, a dog. But I thought they would have done horror stories because that age, when you're in a situation like that, you'd be doing you'd be doing scare stories, trying to mm, wind each other. I don't up. know if they would, man. Because so, mm. but anyway, like I that, think though. it was a little. There was a little bit of a riff on um, Stephen King where he's like, "What's is that the end? What do you mean that's the end? That's rubbish." And so I think that's like maybe yeah. like a little play to Stephen King. However. This is the bit where we see like um, the the kids are like quite scared at night as they would be, and then we see River Phoenix, and he is quite upset. And Gordy wakes up; he's upset. They've they've got a really sweet relationship. It's it's the opposite of like toxic max- masculinity, really. Like it's they are like so sweet and so sensitive and so caring towards each other. That's when you um, see the flashback of like in well in his dream, he's dreaming of the funeral. 
And Gordy, yeah. again, as I said later in the film, the reason he wants to find the body is almost to recreate the funeral, as weird as that sounds, in the sense of finding the body, he can let go of his brother by reacting the way he wished he reacted at the funeral that he didn't do before. And that's quite heavy themes for a PG. Well, actually, no, is this film PG? It's probably not PG, is it? I have no idea uh, what it is. Stand by me. Yeah, is it? 12? I believe it's a twelve. Oh right, okay. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, I also so, yeah. know the reason Jamie really loves this film, by the way, is because it's ninety minutes. Jamie loves. It's eighty-eight actually, but well, okay. yeah, but anything over um, an hour and a half. Woof. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, listen. Um, so. We see him tell the story about the milk money. He's like, did you take the milk money, though? He's like, yeah, I took the milk money. <laughs> and then they, then he really opens up, River, uh, Chris's character really opens up on, like, how sad he is that his dad doesn't love him. Like, and he mm-hmm. cries his eyes out, and it's just a fantastic piece of acting. The thing that I did want to talk about is after this. So... Uh, so firstly I'll say like there's no toxic masculinity between them two River Phoenix obviously cries and he calls himself a pussy loads which is again like the pressures of men not being able to cry especially or seen in it. the 50s though I yeah mean, it's seen as yeah it's seen so. as well it's still even now today like it's, no, seen, it's seen as bad as like for men to cry even um, like people know like that's when people still got handbooks for like how a wife should behave right like gender roles were just yeah, very yeah, much yeah. You, you know women didn't work on the whole on the whole women didn't go to yeah, work men went yeah. to work they're the breadwinner and you should do this 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 it's a very very different period yeah and, and there are there's a few racial uh, not racial says there's a few homophobic slurs in the film as well and stuff as well oh there's loads of homophobic and, think, and then the, and then the next film we could have called yeah. it the homophobic episode Gosh. anyway there's a there's a scene after all this where gordy wakes up before everyone it's a scene that everyone forgets it's a scene no one cares about it's a scene with the deer, John. So he's sitting on the train tracks. He's Seeing reading his comic innocence. and the deer comes. Yeah. Tell me about what you think about the deer. I thought, and this might be complete nonsense, but you know, some people believe either in reincarnation or not, if not that, like the spirits of, if someone dies, like people say, like if they see a bird or a butterfly or whatever, some people say, oh, someone's watching over me. So it might not be they believe someone's reincarnated as an animal it, itself, but they just believe that they're being watched. This sounds really weird out of context, mm. but do you know what I'm trying to say? No, it's fine. So I feel like he felt that the deer being there was a good sign I, and either that he was being looked after or watched or the deer for me, because it was like a, a smaller one, maybe being like innocent, yeah. but surviving there because you hear the wolves and the stuff the night before, but it's still there. Oh, I like that piece, And John. that was, uh, okay. yeah, I don't know. I, so I wasn't truly on board with the piece where you were saying, like, reincarnation, but that I'm on board with. I, well, the only reason I say that is because it's not long after he's had the dreams of his brother in the funeral. Okay. So then I was like, well, if it's brought him happiness, and he's so, and, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Just, just, just. A so for out. me, right, this, this scene, this, this quiet throwaway scene that could be seen as throwaway, I feel like this gives us a moment to dwell on Chris breaking down. Um, I think it shows the innocence of a child and the innocence of a deer um, just before we see this big climax with the body. So it's like a moment of solace almost like, and it allows us to kind of just take it in. Um, he doesn't disclose the moment until years later when he's writing the book. So he's never, he never spoke of that two years later. So it feels quite personal as well. I find it really interesting because I don't know about you, but sometimes we have like like fleeting moments in life, like 
where we're like completely alone and we, or we don't tell anyone about what what we've done or something like so for for example for example i drive to aberystwyth because some of my job involves going to aberystwyth now and again take of that what you will which is a three-hour drive for me and i'm driving in, in in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and often to treat myself on the way home i'll get out of the car about an hour down the road and I'll choose a choose a place and I don't have any signal it's a specific place every time I choose a pullover I sit there and I sit for like 10 15 20 minutes and I just sit there and do nothing and so there are moments like that in everyone's life where like people probably do these types of things like maybe that's them maybe they do a specific thing when they're sitting on the toilet I don't know Oh, do you know what that's what makes me and this has really but, but like you know when you go away on holiday and stuff and you 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 have moments like that more so because you're more receptive relaxed. to taking a break and, and a, a break mm-hmm. and all that stuff but that's the main thing i miss about like um i travel for a year i've talked about the pod before a year and a half and to be fair well nine months that time we were living in one place but we still we drove to like national parks and lived out of a car or went to uh, the outback literally to allure and back and just sometimes like just sounds really cliche but literally just pulling up and just stepping back and looking at a starry sky for an evening or the sunset and it sounds yeah. really cliche but just you know what i'm i don't think it does when i'm here at home in the flat do i do that enough no I, tr- I really try and push myself to try and walk every day even just go around and see some greenery and stuff to get outside because i think you can get so entrapped in like like you said like not taking those moments to just kind of you know when we talk be on it, your own the conversation or, or, will the conversation will be there you're right there's it's like hi how are you what have you been up to how's work right we would never say yeah. have you taken a moment to yourself this week to reflect on <laughs> do you know like, you, 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 you won't yeah, yeah. do it but at the same time there's just like some of the like the best moments in life are those fleeting little bits in between or it might even be if you've Agreed. got a large group of friends and like there might be just like a yeah. specific bit you remember so like on my wedding yeah, there, there, yeah. there's moments I remember that aren't like the bit you might think which is when you like uh, walk down when you, you know, walk down when when yeah yeah, yeah, yeah there, there, might there be, are those yeah. moments of course but there's it's like tiny bits in between like when it, it do you remember when so and so did that yeah and like, it, I can't or, I can't swear but there's, yeah. there's no, like, no no I know it's, it's the moments in between as much and again it, it then links back into the bloody Blade Runner speech you know all these moments like will be lost and, like no, tears in rain but, yeah. but just you know it is true there's fleeting moments in your life that happen that are a, can be a bigger core memory than a whole thing happening but anyway definitely we're getting very and, deep on this but yeah no 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 and well, uh, we've had a question in that's going to get even deeper than that oh god um, which I don't know if we'll be able to answer to be honest we'll try um, but we'll, we'll try without really bringing it down the I think that this this scene in particular has aged remarkably so if you think about really like nowadays the way the world is set up with the internet constantly being connected social media we feel like everyone knows what we're doing everything about us all the time because we have a we have a need to do that i do it on the instagram for example i'm like i'm watching this film because i need to keep the instagram running etc etc so it means more now than ever and so that that moment in between the two heaviest potentially heaviest moments in the film Three, we've got Teddy going ballistic and losing his mind, rightly so. We've got Chris crying his eyes out, breaking his heart. Then we have this moment of solace to just take it in. Then, again, we we have the body. And so, well, just before the body, we have the leeches. Yeah, the the, the leeches bit, I, it was just... I don't think it was trying to signify anything. I think it was just stuck another obstacle along the journey, isn't it? 
I don't feel like there's any any particular weight to that happening. Um, do you know, do you know I think, what I mean? It's, it's I a think struggle. again, it just, it's, it's just a struggle more that build. they carried on, but it's not like it's not like any character growth particularly from that. I think scene. it's more of a horror sequence as a Stephen yeah. King horror. It's a bit piece. Stephen Kingy, yeah. And then we've talked about this idea, and we've kind of done a classic. We've done like a, a non-linear edit here, where we've started with the end and then gone back round to it. But yeah, oh yeah, of course we are. With the you know, this is this is big time, baby. Uh, Gordy's got the gun and he threatens the Cobra gang with it because they try and take the body away from him and he the keeps others like there's no way you will shoot me because he's got his knife right and he can see in Gordy's eyes that he's so like obsessed or almost like manically protective protecting this over his friends that it's not anything to mess with so that quote you know this is big time baby I mean it does make you wonder what actually happened at school afterwards i mean it to it, be fair it could have been pretty, pretty difficult i i think that the reason what a lot along the way gordy shows his um intelligence he's very intelligent and he he sort of says like to the kids when they're like having a good oh we're not having fun blah blah and then gordy's like oh we're going to see a dead body like maybe this shouldn't be fun yeah maybe so he's should. quite emotionally intelligent and would you say it it reminds me of in the fellowship of the ring it starts with like the hobbits being like, "This is a great jolly," like everyone's loving it, yeah. and then they're a bit like, "We're trying to enter the worst place on on the earth that's impossible to get to," and everyone kind of brings the tone down, and then they don't fr- um, uh, fragment off as they do in 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 the fellowship. Well, but, yeah, you know, it's it's a similar thing where it's the innocence is lost well and yeah. truly by about hence the episode theme, an hour and a half in, because it's only an hour and a half long. But anyway, yeah, there we go. The the body reminds Gordy of Denny, I think, and he's like. I don't think he was expecting it. He grieves for the first time. Yeah, he, he says his dad hates him. Yeah, he can't grieve initially for whatever reason. I think probably because he's trying to keep his parents going. But then by the end of it, yeah, he does. And yeah, I just uh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, like, I, I think the vacant. Uh, this sounds a bit deep, really, but like the body being like lifeless and vacant and sort of like that's. I think that's the way. Like, I think that's the way Gordy feels like his mum and dad see him. Like, they look through him most of the time. They see him just as a, a person that lives there. They, they It's almost like they don't love him. And a lot of what Rob Reiner's done throughout all of this. So Rob Reiner, obviously this 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 uh, got nominated for an Oscar for a screenplay mm-hmm. um, written by a few different people. But Rob Reiner, all these little things like Pinky Swear, Skin It, um, Your Mum Jokes, they were all from like 50s when like Rob Reiner's childhood and stuff. So he's taken, that's why it feels so real a lot of it the the piece about the parents and stuff again that was that was rob reiner like kind of uh riffing off like his own experiences um yeah it's it's probably my favorite sorry i was about to say is that kind of the reason stranger things the best moments with the kids works well especially in those early seasons when they were still kids is the fact that um the writers the duffel brothers are duffer or duffel can't remember duffer duffer uh they yeah, are lots of coats they didn't have coats mate. <laughs> they're referencing their childhoods that's why it's so good that's you you the best thing to take stock from is things that have happened to yourself or about things you know yeah. about like that so i think so yeah. and, that, and that's why it comes so naturally like the the my favorite one of my favorite parts of the whole film i will just i'm, I'm almost finished i promise the the bit where he says he he points the gun and he says suck my fat one you cheap dime store hood and i used to say that in school all the time because i thought that was the coolest thing um me and a girl do you know do you know what's really funny right 
the girl that I spoke about last episode that has my copy oh, of yeah, Viva yeah. Vendetta, this was the same girl. And we used to talk about this film all the time. And uh, we, used to, we used to quote that all the time. Um, so, yeah. And then we finish on, like, the friends drifting away. Van lives a relatively normal life. Teddy goes to prison, as expected. Tried for the army, but his eyes and his ears just weren't good enough. Um, Chris went to college and become a lawyer and got stabbed in the throat. That is the sad. Trying to resolve a situation, as he does throughout the film. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Perfect. Just got some questions to answer now. So, uh, for the first question, Pat Roy's in... This is before we cover Cruel Intentions, naughty little 90s film. Uh, Euphoria, Skins and the like have showed that there is an interest in coming of age, loss of innocence style teen dramas on TV. You're going to love this question, John. Absolutely. Is there a future for this subject in a movie format or doesn't that allow enough scope for developing characters in the same way? So, John, I'm split on this because... You're just buzzing to talk about skins in your career again. And be justified to do it. What I was going to say, I'm split on this because I think in the TV formats, you obviously have a lot... The arcs are longer, so it's not a quick fix. So, for example, Euphoria. Rue had an overdose at the start of season one. That's the setup for the entire series, and it's watching her try and recover. And we're two seasons in, and it's showing that it's not... In a film, the end of the film might be she's recovered and met someone and they lived happily ever after. The TV show shows it's a struggle day in, day out. It's a very hard watch. It's very, an uns- not unsympathetic, that's not the phrase I want to use, but it's very, it pulls no punches, right? It shows it, it how it is for what it is and it shows how difficult her life is. Now in a TV, in a film, I think you can get that across to an extent, but it, it, I suppose in a film you'd use it as a passage of time, so you'd show them younger in the middle of their life and at the end of their life. Yeah. Maybe. Um, yeah. So, yeah, different. I personally prefer it in the TV format, but also it allows them to take on multiple characters at once and show how they interact more. However, on the flip side of that, you've got Stand By Me, which we've just spent best part of an hour talking about how well it's dealt with all these different subplots of what all these kids are going through and how they dealt with it in a 90-minute film. So it can be done, but it's it's a smaller arc. There's a much smaller arc in Stand By Me because it's it's like it's for me it's the arc of Gordy coming to the realization of like grieving for his brother and how he deals with that. And that's like his moment of when he lost his innocence and, and how he grew up, right? That's that's his or his coming yeah. of age. Like it is coming of age as, as much as it is loss of innocence. And Euphorian skins, as I said, they've got longer to play with, so they deal with more issues. Um but it, I, in, in films, yeah. I think the way you do it is you change the you change the way you jump around in time more. So you're making up for the fact you haven't got I don't know um, four hours worth of episodes or well, longer now. Let's say let's say nine hours a season. It's, I mean, nothing happened really in Euphoria season two, so all good. Don't matter. Don't matter, does we it? We disagree on this. I mean, it's not as good as season one. It's, all, it's, it's not as... style over substance, mate. Anyway, um, I'm gonna let I... that slide because that could be a whole other thing. But yeah, go, go on. <laughs> Your thoughts. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think personally you could say that about anything. So you could look at the evolution of Walter White in uh, Breaking Bad yep. over seven, six or seven seasons. You can look at the evolution of Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, um, Tony Soprano. I think that it's very much is that na- the nature of something like that. As long as you've got really good writing and really good characterization, you can 
do it in a film. I think, do you know what? I think one of the most recent films that do this really, really, well, do you know who the master of it is? And I'm really sorry to say it's Martin Scorsese. So what Martin Scorsese does with uh, Ray Liotta's character in Goodfellas, taking him from a child to a man and his whole, whole life, and he manages to do that in two hours, and a, two and a half hours. What he does with Robert De Niro's character in The Irishman, same thing. Like, But we, again, they're both see... playing with time. They well, are. Well, it's like a legacy. So. It's almost like a legacy like film, a biopic, isn't it? But, you, you... but not. Yeah, 100%. So... I think there is there is definitely a future for it in the, a movie format, but it's just you've it's Different just way of done it. so wrong so many times. I'm I'm trying to think of bad examples of it, but well, my bad example, and you're going to tell me off because it's science fiction. But if you take the Star Wars prequels, the whole point was like it's supposed to be the rise of Darth Vader. Then essentially, you've got two, you've got four hours worth of it not being done particularly well. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Okay, and yeah. So the first two a films, lot of scenes of people saying. You know, oh look how great, how good of friends we are. Remember when we did this? But you never actually now, see this. this. Is pod racing? No, 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 Can't no, imagine why jo- I got bullied. But jokes are like jokes. Sorry, uh, in episode two and episode three, <laughs> it's like the whole crux of that film is supposed to be when Obi Wan and Anakin fall out. It's because like they were best friends, they were brothers, and like, and no matter how good Ewan McGregor's acting is, we never really see them act as brothers. We never really see them getting on. Anakin's always an ass to him. I've got it, the higher ground. And he's always an ass back. So yeah. you never get that relationship. And it's like Clone Wars spends so much time trying to develop that relationship and fill yeah. in those gaps. And and this is what I wanted from the Obi-Wan season. And they did it for about one episode. And that's and it's it's padded it out better, but it's still like it was, you know, it's filling in cracks, right? It's a polished turd is still a turd. You're just kind of filling it around it. But it's glitter on dog shit, mate. That's what it is. It's but, that... but yeah, it's, it, my point being is, is you know, that's an example for me of, of films where it wasn't done well and it's only worked better since subsidiary media has come out around it afterwards. Okay, I'll that's, take that. So, yep, I like so, yeah, it. Well done. Other yeah, film like examples of it being done poorly. I, I t- I've got a film, a film example of it being done well and this one doesn't fleet in time much, which is Perks being a wallflower. It covers like a year, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't jump around his life. You have flashbacks to memories and stuff. But again, that arc is very ambiguous. There's not really a resolution. But then again, Euphoria is not going to have a resolution. Like it will, it will be up to us to decide if Rue lives happily ever after or if she struggles her whole life. Like, I don't think it's going to, how do you end that season? That series, sorry. It will probably end with her going to university or not, I'm guessing. But it doesn't... It... Yeah, and then it'll get into, like, um, One Tree Hill territory where it should have just ended, but it doesn't end because it's making too much money. Quite like something else. Anyway, regular listener, but uh, sometimes questioner, Lauren underscore G writes in, and she says, Do you think Kiefer Sutherland played a better villain in Stand By Me or The Lost Boys? I loved this question, by the way. Um, oh, it's hard because, in, I mean, he's literally born evil in... in, in the other one um lost boys lost boys yeah i mean he's a vampire super super evil i mean he's more manipulative evil in that one whilst in this he's just he's a bored bully in a in an outback town okay was my take on it disagree okay i think he's way meaner in this because so okay so maybe and why apart from tricking people into becoming a vampire in the previous one. But anyway, yeah, go on. Oh, naughty Kiefer. Um, <laughs> you're, they're only worms, David. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. You're like, you're oh, it's not worms. that bad. It's, it's just noodles, David. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> no, I think he's way worse than Stand By Me. The reason why I think that is because 
he's he's going to kill children. True. He's going to kill twelve-year-old <laughs> kids, right? And it's it's it feels realer. It feels well realer, and he feels way more sinister but in this. It's, it's grounded because, he, because it's actually based in reality. I mean, look, Lost Boys. Hur- is not, yeah, and, and that, so that's what I was going to say. Adds gravitas right. to the performance, etc. The fact et that it's based in reality, um, I think, is 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 definitely something that makes me yeah. This is big time, baby. Let's say. Do you know again. what though? I when I saw Kiefer, I was just thinking of um, all that soundtrack from um, Lost Boys. You oh. reach in, you know, like do do, and like the bikes. Yeah. yeah, 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 and like the bikes going in the chase sequence. Joel Schumacher. Oh, like we had a whole. I'm so glad you love anyway. Lost Boys, so mate. You're going to just be by the end of all these podcasts, right? You're just going to be a little mini version of me that likes Yay. sci-fi. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Right, so um, we've got a few more questions, but they're okay. not for just now. Oh, I think we should go on to the second film, so I have things to say, and then we can link it back between the two. Good job, because that's what I was going to do. Oof. So, so go for it. What are we doing, John? What's the second film? Cruel. What's this sexy, naughty little film? Cruel Intentions. You know, you could be a model. It's too bad you're not sexy. <sighs> I can be sexy. You know what would be super duper sexy? If you lost all the clothes. Huh? I'm sick of sleeping with these insipid Manhattan debutantes. Ow! Nothing shocks them anymore. Well, you can relax. I have a mission for you. Why I Plan to Wait by Annette Hargrove. Paradigm of chastity and virtue. Introduce her to your world of sex, drugs, and what else do you do? She's young. There are some absolute bangers in this film, music-wise, and like I feel like I got my cassette slash CD player back out. You, do you know what I mean? I can imagine going and buying this back in the day, listening to most of these tracks. Kate reviews films, writes in, and she says, "How iconic is the soundtrack for Cruel Intentions?" Kate, just by the way, you've done well to not be mentioned by Johnny so far in the pod. How far are we in, John? Uh, do you know what? One hour and 16 minutes. Oh, he's yeah. managed to hold his tongue all this time. <laughs> anyway, how iconic is the soundtrack for Cruel Intentions? Massive, John? massive, massive, massive. Just a lot of tracks. Is it big time, baby? It's, <laughs> it's big time. Uh, yeah, it's a, a lot of tracks that... Get the, get the playlist up right now. Let's have, let's have a read through of... I've got it, mate. Bangers. I've got it up okay, already. Go I've, I've already got that right. Name me some so, bangers. So we've got the first... Well, I'm not. I'm going to start you off with one that I hate, oh. actually, um, which is... Every You, Every Me by Placebo. I'm not a fan of this band in general, and I know I might be a bit crazy to say that, but I hate Placebo. I hate his voice. <laughs> when it all breaks down. Oh, no, thank you, Mr. Placebo. So, no. So, so to answer your question, the f- beginning of the soundtrack to Cruel Intentions is not iconic, Kate, but then it gets better. You've got so we've Fat got Boy Praise Slim. You by Fat Bully Sim. Dun, 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 Coffee dun, and TV. Dun. Potentially one of my favourite songs by Blair. Coffee and TV, banger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got a few ones. You've got Colorblind, not by... Counting Crows. Rest, is, rest in peace, Darius, um, but by the Counting Crows. Um, and yeah, we've got... We've got it, we, we end on Skunk and Nancy, I think, um, and Bittersweet Symphony. So... Oh, yeah, Bittersweet Symphony. ITV have ruined that for me. Here's a niche reference for you English listeners. Uh, so yeah, ITV's football <laughs> coverage for about five years has been... So I can't listen to it. And then Nat West had it for a banking advert. So to be honest, it's ruined for me, that song. And there, there's, you know, like 
there was that 80s wave of everything was 80s for a while. There's a bit of a 90s throwback now, isn't there? So all these tracks are coming back around. You've still got Oasis tracks being used for Banks and stuff now, haven't you? Or, or yeah, like definitely, definitely. Versions, or the John Lewis advert. Get ready for that, guys. At Christmas, we'll all be banging on about the new John Lewis advert and what what yeah. what nineties oh, piece of music. What can you not afford? No, no, but it's like look oh. at all this stuff you can't afford because the energy cap's not not in yet, and we've got an energy crisis, and no one can afford anything. So they've got to listen to a an absolutely free podcast, movies in a pod show. You can get it on Spotify, <laughs> iTunes, rate us five stars. But what yeah. I was going to say was they're, they're like, oh, what 90s song can we find and, and make it nice with a piano version of it and slow it down? It's just like every year does my head in. Well, anyway. do you know what? The biggest banger on the whole thing is the one the one from Blair. And if I wanted to know, and if I... Anyway. Okay, right, let's so... actually talk about the film itself. But Kate, yeah, banging soundtrack. No two ways about it. I have to cook dinner after this episode of recording the pod. I shall be listening to the soundtrack. <laughs> What are you having for dinner though, John? Is it spag ball? No, it is not. Uh, it's a chicken and mash situation tonight. <laughs> that's a, do you know what? That, that's a little little insight into John there. Like, <laughs> do you know what? I've actually changed it up. There's some Caesar salads going on at lunchtime at the moment. But... When me and John were at uni, right? When me and John were at uni. <laughs> oh, sorry, John. It's gonna have to. It's gonna. It's going in there. When me and John were at uni, John would like obviously he, he worked as well. And he lived on a budget. And by me, by I, t- I tell you what, there's one guy that can live on a budget, and it's John. And he, and, and it's, it was through choice as well. It was through choice. He, he he decided to live on that budget. Didn't quite have to. Oh yes, we had spaghetti bolognese every single night. But we we sometimes wouldn't even use mince. We'd use the cheapest meat we could find in the store, and it was generally just like twenty five percent fat pork or whatever it is, pork chunks with. <laughs> How much was the tomato sauce, John? <laughs> 30 pence you can tell yes. how long ago this was now because it cost of living that's probably about a pound now for that yeah that bloody and pound. so yeah so and yeah john we the, so there's a running joke for john and it is that <laughs> sorry he's sitting there and he's <laughs> he's not happy about this he's not happy that it's my edit week um yeah, this I is know, my right. this is my way of getting him to edit it by like saying all this stuff um yeah like we we there's a joke that between me and his his uncles um and the joke is that john doesn't eat for enjoyment he simply eats to stay alive to fuel it's, it's just fuel apparently yeah food is just fuel to john and do you know what that's pretty much true unless it's chocolate cake uh yeah that's true chocolate cake brings enjoyment white chocolate's my new thing now i'm way more into white chocolate oh yeah yeah but anyway no one cares about that so yeah. thanks for that random tangent about my food <laughs> and eating habits from you know like 15 years, I'm years man. but whatever um, <laughs> yeah let's get my sorry my eating habits from 12 years ago that still exist today cool carry on go for it yeah well yeah a little bit but anyway um the pasta sauce costs more these days so times have changed right cruel intentions uh it's got sarah michelle geller in it and can i just say i'm a massive fan of buffy and i've talked about it on the pod many a time so very weird to watch me see sarah michelle geller play a very manipulative slightly sexy evil I would Sexy. say character. Okay, um, sorry. But I also I say evil. I mean, tell her the picture. Sexy. I'm joking. Yeah, she is no. sexy in the film, Jamie. We know. Cool. Right, sorry. So she plays Catherine Mertil, and then who knows? It's some posh a, second name, isn't it? It's based on a Shakespearean piece, isn't it? Right, and she has a, a Sebastian. Yeah. Ru- no, sorry. It's based on a French play. Sorry, it's based on a French play about a, a, a stepsister and a step this is brother it. and their sexy weird dynamic. Yeah, you heard that right. Uh, the oh, brother it's really weird. Is Sebast- Sebastian Valmont, and he is played by Ryan Felipe. Now, 
Uh, basically, they're both seductive. They're manipulative step step siblings who get what they want when they want it, literally. And when they what they mean by what they want, they're basically just bonking left, right, center. Catherine makes a bet with Seb- uh, what are they doing? Bonking. Catherine makes a bet with Sebastian. <laughs> Sebastian must bed Annette, daughter of the headmaster, at their school before the end of summer break. Annette has stated that she would wait until love and marriage to sleep with a man played by the one and only Reese Witherspoon. If Catherine wins. That's Sarah Michelle Gellar. She gets Sebastian's vintage 1959 Jaguar Roadster. I mean, come on. The whole setup of this just sounds shady as it is. But anyway, if Sebastian wins, he gets to have a night with Catherine, the only girls he knows the only girl he knows he'll never have. And he, and, and she'll let him put it in any hole. Yeah. That was her, really important. That's a quote. Also, that is a quote from the yeah, from the film. It's a quote from directly from the film. Also in play is Cecil, a naive girl whose mother Cecile. Cecile. <laughs> Cecil. <laughs> Um, also played by Cecil, 90-year-old pensioner that oh, lives next door. His uh, <laughs> mother has enlisted Catherine to help her fit in a new school. However, Catherine plans to ruin Cecile's reputation as revenge on Cat's Cecil. ex-boyfriend who, who left her for Cecile. Right, there's a lot right. going on here, but basically, you know what we can say? basically, stepbrother and stepsister weirdly having sexual innuendos with each other who want to, to basically get with each other, but never doing it. Lots of uh, lap dancing, lying on each other. Very, very Lots strange. Of bonking. And guess what happens? So Sebastian Valmont is a terrible person in this film. He beds lots of women. And like, again, it's not the th- fact he beds the women. It's the fact they are manipulated. And like, he has uh, photos of them he shouldn't have. It's all really, really bad. It's all not okay. And this film tries to tell me by the end of this film, because he falls in love with someone and does one good deed, he's redeemed. And, like, he's a good guy. And, like, the music swells as if I'm supposed to say, do you know what, Sebastian Valmont, he changed his ways. And it was actually his evil sister. But the other thing I want to say is, in the film, yeah, Sam Michelle Gellar says, am I, you know, why is it that as a man you can sleep with whoever you want and never get questioned, but as a woman I'm ostracised? You know, is it supposed to be bad? Like, should I be looked down upon? And the answer to this film, essentially from the finale, apparently is yes, you should. Because she takes the full brunt (laughs) of, like, the whole, like, oh, well, you know what? Like, yeah, he might have manipulated all these women and, yeah, he might have slept with all these people, but he stopped one person from getting killed by a car and he died himself, so it's fine. It's like, yeah, that is a pretty heroic act, but he's still, you know, essentially coerced lots of women into doing things they did not want to do. And essentially... I suppose she's also coercing people into things they don't particularly want to do. But, like, they're like, oh, not only is she sleeping with people, she takes drugs. You know, open the cross-up, she takes drugs. Like, they basically just really point the finger at the end as if she's, like, this horrific person. I'm not saying she's a good person, by the way. She's a manipulative person. But trying to make out the other guy, her stepbrother, is completely, like, all A-OK, like, no problem here. It's just not okay, right? Is it just me? Am I being very passionately defending a film or not defending a film, criticising it? I just, it blew my mind. Sorry. Well, John, <laughs> are you about done? Yeah. Yeah, yeah? cool, good. Do you, do <laughs> wow. you agree, John's on form tonight. I love it. No, what? Do, didn't you agree I'm... with me, though, Like when the film's just suddenly like, no? <laughs> um. Right. And also... So for starters, let me... for starters... So, sorry, yeah, yeah, go on. I'll... I'm just going to say, we start off right, and his name's Sebastian. So we already know he's a bit of a twat because his name's Basti- Sebastian. <laughs> so no offence to any listeners any that listeners are called, called that. Sebastian, not your fault. Not your fault, but you're probably a twat. I would like to say, <laughs> I would like to say the beginning, right? The beginning where uh, Sebastian's in therapy 
Um, he's in therapy because he's got this sex addiction, blah, blah, blah. Flirting with um, his... With his um, flirting with his... Flirting with um, his therapist. Correct. Uh, he says she's got killer legs, blah, blah, blah. Tries to kind of seduce her, but doesn't get away with it and then walks out. Then therapist's daughter calls up. Tara Reed. Played by Tara Reed. Excellent. Uh, Tara Reed... Um, crying her eyes out yeah this guy blah 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 he's got naked pictures of me they're all over the internet he said i've got killer legs therapist puts two and two together right so sebastian right basically what we can say sebastian has gone down the revenge porn route which under section 30 under section 33 of the criminal justice and court act 2015 this offense is punishable by up to two years in prison revenge porn is also known by the term image-based sexual abuse and refers to private sexual videos or photos of someone shared online or offline without that person's consent sebastian it doesn't matter what you're doing mate you're going to jail See, like, I thought you were going to try and, like, this film, it's just, it's so, like, it makes you realise how far we've come, though, that in the 90s, like, people walked out of this being like, oh, my God, like, well done, Sebastian, you're a really good guy. No, right. Do you know I what would I like mean? To, no, what, what I would like to say, right, is I don't think, directed 1999, directed by Roger Cumble, didn't really do much else, apart from Crew Intentions 2 and done some not very good films. No offence, Roger. Um, I would say that, like, when i remember so i went to i went to senior school which is i guess high school when i was like that's the one you go to when you're 12 or 13 yeah i went there in the year 2000 so the language that's used throughout the film the stuff that's done throughout the film generally just just wasn't really frowned upon back then i say this all the time because it it wasn't i wouldn't say frowned upon it was but it was accepted yeah it was it was just accepted there's um, um he's got um uh a friend who's um He's sleeping with one of the jocks before the jocks. Yeah, Blaine. So Blaine. But the jock is like, he's absolutely obsessed with not being found out, right? He's absolutely obsessed with like keeping up a persona. Destroy his career. And he keeps talking about the fact like he he rattles off a load of homophobic slurs. But then it turns out it's because he's secretly... So does does Blaine, played by Joshua Jackson. And it turns out it's because he's... he's, Yeah, anyway. Listen, the most important part about Blaine is the fact that he's played by Joshua Jackson, who's none other than Charlie Conway from The Mighty Ducks. Which is a banging film, right? What I would like the Gregster. What I'd like to say, right, is that yeah, this this film is. I can't even really tell you the plot because it's so convoluted. Um, I don't really know myself. Can we can we just talk about some key moments and other bits about why I think that basically Sebastian is an awful human being and why I don't really care that. I don't redeemed. think they celebrate him, by the way. I don't think they. I think cele- they bloody I well do. I I think they bloody well do. Tell you what he does, right? So there's a whole scheme with like Catherine's annoyed because her ex boyfriend went off with Selma Blair's character, Cecile. So she's like, oh, we'll sort this out. So he, she has a cello instructor who she's trying to sleep with, uh, who Sarah Michelle... Sorry, trying he's to trying to sleep with her. Well, yeah, but Sarah Michelle Gellar's trying to set it up to actually happen because it's on the verge, but it's not happening. And then she's like, oh, she needs to have a sexual awakening. Sebastian, go and sort it out. He goes around with his camera and says, oh, you could be a model, starts taking some photos. By the way, he gives her a big alcoholic drink before. Not Okay. She asked for an iced tea. Gets worse. He Gets made her worse. on island. Then, and then, then, like, she's doing the photos and stuff. He's like, oh, it'd be better if you were topless, right? Or, like, take take clothes off. This is okay. horrendous, by the right, way. So fine. this part is horrendous. You're mad. I wrote loads about and then, this bit. And then he's like, I want to give you a kiss. And then she goes to kiss him on the face. Like, no, that's not where I want to kiss you. And I literally was just like, this is so bad on every level. And then, yeah, you can imagine where he ends up kissing her because it's not a thigh. And, yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's just like, and then 
and then yeah she has she then goes and tells Catherine she's had a sexual awakening and she does then sleep with him multiple times afterwards but he's just doing it to use her and I suppose after that point she's into it but because she's coerced initially it's just really no, he, messed up I listen. Like to swear that. I never swear on the pod but like it is completely messed up the whole thing is just it's very manipulative and like control behavior and just listen just, he he yeah so it's not good seb is like sorry i called him seb because i, I, I can't be sebastian. Say sebastian yeah yeah seb's telling that she could be a model like <sighs> i like i so can I, I just want there's a few things that i re- remember from when i first saw it which was like again when i was about 15 16 um i've seen it many times since and, and by the way i love the film i love this film it's, it's very good fun. If there's ever a guilty pleasure, I'm guessing this would be one of them. Yeah, it's, you know really, it's just really good fun. It's great fun. Yeah. Um, so Cecile, uh, played by Salma Blair, this film made me hate Salma Blair because I hate the way she plays Cecile's character so much. Like She makes me cringe in every single scene. And I know that's the point. So I get it now. <laughs> I get it. That's the point. I'm cringing. So when he's like saying, oh, yeah, you could be a model. And she's like doing all this posing and stuff because she's very naive and very young and she's a virgin. I hate watching her. I hate it. And I'll continue to hate it. But I know that's the idea. Now, I it's unapo- I think it's unapologetic in how they make Sebastian look and how he will stop at nothing to get what he wants. So he gaslights her. Yeah. He, he makes her feel bad. And he eventually, basically, makes her do what he wants her to do, just like he does every other woman. She's coerced into sleeping with him. As far so as what I would say... Is I would I would say that that this film doesn't celebrate that. This film this film says like this is what guys do. And do you know what? There is an element of truth about that because we've all we've all known guys had friends, probably not friends anymore that were like that. And so I, I don't think straight away the who we both know. But anyway, yeah. And so I think that, that this film I wouldn't say it celebrates the way they act. I would I, I would say that the ending. Okay, no, so that it doesn't celebrate the behaviour in the rest of the film, but at the end it treats it as if it's all okay from one one thing. That's yeah. my issue with it. And also, yeah. you know, okay, so effectively the side plot of the film is he ends up meeting someone who's a true, um, you know, doesn't believe in sex before marriage, and played by Reese well, no, Witherspoon. So, so, so the, the 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 whole thing is it's it's the very ten things I hate about you. She's all that nineties thing, right? And it's that Reese Witherspoon arrives on the scene, right? And I, I will I, I want to talk a lot about Reese Witherspoon because she's brilliant at this. Actually, she, she yeah, I'll talk about that. He is she's so Reese Witherspoon is the headmaster's daughter. Sebastian needs to sleep with Reese Witherspoon in order to sleep with Catherine, his stepsister, who he loves, right? Uh, Catherine's, like, putting it on him all the time, like, touching him, etc., etc., leaves him hanging, all that kind of thing. He ends up... So he's trying to get with Reese Witherspoon. He's manipulating. He basically takes pictures of Greg, the Gregster, who's, like, captain of the football team, takes pictures of him in bed with another man in order to... Um, uh, what's the word? John? Blackmail. Blackmail him. Yep. So in order to blackmail him, so then he can get close to this girl. It really, the, the plot is really Mad. far too deep. It doesn't need to be anywhere near this deep. Anyway, so he then starts getting with Reese. Tries to sorry, tries to get with Reese Witherspoon's character. Um, tries really hard. Annette, she's having none of it. She's heard all the stories. He tries. Seb, he tries all the manipulation techniques and basically yep. don't work. He tries the model thing. The he moodiness. Tries, he tries that. Oh, I'm going into the pool in the evening and tries it all. And it's and it's and the best part is she's just not going for it whatsoever. 
and then he gets to the point where he, she starts she he says one thing to her and she says that's the first bit of truth you've ever told me and it's basically she, he says that she says he's so serious and he gets really offended and then he describes why he's so serious and it's the one moment she can see him actually telling the truth and it, it goes he's so creepy he's creepy and he's cringe and he reminds me of Hayden, Hayden Christensen in episode two what is like, I you're more beautiful since the first day I've been dreaming about you you know all that stuff you're like oh okay mate all right i i, I was getting proper spike vibes from him um what, as in the way he looks spike, spike yeah. from uh, buffy yeah um so what i would say is sarah michelle gal is great because this is right slap bang in the middle of when she's recording buffy yep. so this is probably between seasons three and four i reckon what year is it which uh, this was 99 so yeah, buffy so was what 97 to 2003 yeah it would have literally been around then so. slap bang in the middle right so that's that's quite interesting because Sarah Michelle Gellar is hilarious in this and her character's hilarious, but she's also extremely nasty and vindictive. So it's doing a lot there. Um, at the same time, we've got like, and, and the reason what this is the reason why I think the film is very satirical. So you've also got Cecile's mum who finds out about the cello teacher who's black um, yeah, trying to sleep with Cecile. Yeah, yeah? Yeah, yeah. She's so racist and she's like, um, I got you off the streets. And he is like, I live on 59th and North, like, or something. And like, yeah, as in, like, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, like, she's like, he's like, what are you talking about? And then, so he's like, and then he's like down the hallway saying, the black man is gone, like all this. So th- the reason why I think the film's quite self-aware and maybe it's not supposed to, it's, it's just got that 90s ending. But I think throughout when you're seeing these horrible characters there's a i don't think it's apologizing for them i don't think i think you're supposed to hate them you're supposed to realize how shit they are okay well if that is the case then fine but what i'm saying is sebastian essentially gets to the point where him and reese witherspoon's relationship develops where she just wants to be friends so he's around her and being friends with her and then he's like i can't be friends with you and you're a hypocrite because I'm, i'm i'm literally he says i'm in love with you and i believe he is in love with her at this point and, and I believe he is, yeah. And then she she loves him for the first time. She loves him too. And then basically they go and she invites him to sleep with her. But then he won't do it because he's like, Oh my god, I'm literally about to right. fulfill the wait, wait, no, this is the realization of him being like, I got what I want, but I've got it from the wrong means and this is not how I want to get it. I want to tell her the truth. So he does tell her the truth. And the truth is that I manipulate women all the time. I do this, this, this and that. I'm not a good person, you're better off without me and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, 100%. you know, it's then following yeah. that through with. <laughs> yeah, it's what well, it is, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so the, like, in in terms of that, like, I, that's when Sarah Michelle Geller basically, he is, it's all coming to a head. Yeah. He, he can, he can have Reese Witherspoon at this point. He can have her. And, in, and he is kind of bottling it. He's completely bottled because it in a way. Because it's not truthful. And, and when they actually end up together, it's truthful. And this is why the film makes made me feel like the film was trying to say, well, because he was truthful at that moment and because they do sleep together. And the difference is when you, you see him sleeping with people previously in the film, it's very about what he wants out of it. And like he's very like unapologetically so, getting what he wants. And then with her, it's filmed very differently. It's very... Uh, I say tasteful, that sounds really... But, you know, it's like he keeps saying, are you the- okay? And like he's very affectionate. Was previously yeah, then he bottles it then he the, when I, and when i say by the way when i say he bottles it he he backs out because and this is the most important part of the film and it's really for me when reese witherspoon comes alive and she 
wipes the floor with every single person in this film from this moment onwards. When the, the, the look in her eyes when he is about to sleep with her, about to um, take her virginity, um, knowing it's a lie, knowing he's got what he wanted in the end, and this is it, Catherine's got what she, like, he wants Catherine, and this, and to get Catherine and not lose the 59 Roadster, he's got to sleep with her. But he, he's got feelings for her now, and he's like, actually, no, it's wrong. And so the look in her eyes, the the innocence, the, the vulnerability, that is honestly like that that scene gets me big time but also after that scene when they do eventually reconcile together and they do sleep together for the first time my big point is the fact of like how it's so different to how he treats women previously so yeah do you yeah, know what yeah, I'm yeah yeah, yeah. Like he very much is it's very like, passionate are you okay it's passion rather than you know and yeah essentially by the end of the film we jump from he basically realizes he he basically breaks it off with her because he's not a good person. The the, the problem is like yeah, that, yeah yeah that that moment there is when the when he turned like when he when when he t- basically he stops it with um, Reese Witherspoon. So he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't Annette. sleep with her. Annette. He doesn't sleep with her, and then he also turns down Catherine because Catherine like he he has slept with he sorry. He sleeps with Annette, and then he turns down Catherine because Correct. he loves Annette. And, and, so, and then Catherine's fuming because she's like, yep. the whole and thing is she can manipulate and run him, and if he's then a wild card and can't be manipulated, then... That's where my issue with the film comes in. So my, my issue with the film and the filmmaking and the writing comes in there because that, then it, it turns into classic 90s. I could have turned the film off then, having never seen it, and written down exactly what would happen next. And it's like... You just, it's so predictable what would happen next. Um, she's fuming that Sebastian won't get with her. And that is when the the 10 things I hate about you, she's all that, the constant gaslighting, the, the um, this, it was all a big lie comes in. And that's where it hits that proper 90 stride. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, this is the sequence that annoys me, which is like, okay, so they break, basically they break up and... He chases her at the train station, doesn't he? I might he, get confused. <laughs> um, it's it's so convoluted. This film, like, there's so no, many so, like, no, false so, turns. When's, so he, when's the train station bit when he's at the top of the escalator? No, he. So he goes to see her. He goes to no. Uh, right. This is anyway. why we stopped doing play by plays because we have useless memories. But well, say, he, he goes. He goes to see her, doesn't he? He goes to see her in a hotel room, and this is where. And th- this is. I wanted to speak about this. He breaks it off with her in a hotel room. Ah, no, 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 you're right. No, you're right, yeah. So after he turns her down, he doesn't sleep with Annette, she disappears, and then he turns does everything the he can. And then he turns up at the train station, right? And at the train station, yeah. he's like, I said it because I'm actually in love with you. Then they sleep together. Then they're still together. I can't remember what the kick Then he breaks off. No, no, he doesn't break it off again. This is what happens. He, he breaks it off again, but part of the issue is because that the cello teacher, Ronald, the cello teacher... um. Sarah Michelle get her sleeping with him and she says that when Sebastian won't sleep with her, she says, Sebastian's off the deep end. He's been hitting me. And then he goes to confront him. So there's a sequence where con- yeah. Sebastian's been battered in the street by Ronald, but then for some reason, I can't really... No, that's not- right at the end. That's right at the end. Oh. No, the, the, so the bit I wanted to talk about, the bit I wanted to talk about was the bit, the pe- there's a piece when um, Sebastian breaks it off with... Uh, Reese Witherspoon in order 
He breaks it off of Annette in order to be with Catherine because Catherine is gaslighted at him. So she, Catherine's gaslighted him and said like, oh, you're pathetic, like blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he says, I don't, I don't love you. It was all a lie. And he's crying and he's shaking. And that's when Reese Witherspoon does probably her best work of the whole entire yeah, film. And yeah, that's, when, that's when you really realize how good she is. This is one of her first proper main roles. Um, even, well, sorry, it's not even main, but this I think this was what really got her big. Um, she'd done American Psycho in the same year, which was a complete bit part role as well. And then she did Election, which is a big role for her. Then Little Nicky with Adam Sandler. And then the big one, Legally Blonde. Blonde yeah. I believe it all came from this role here and that part in the hotel room when she is crying screaming she she's incredible like she wipes the floor with every single person in this film and i love her unreal and so yeah and then and then yeah it all unfurls um they she finds he gives he gives her the book doesn't he he says like look he gives her the book the book where he's been writing about everyone he's got a dear diary hasn't he dear diary he's got a diary about what they've been up to and and all the all the schemes and yeah basically it all comes to a head with by the time they try and reconcile after that, they can't reconcile because, spoilers, he dies. He jumps in front of a car to save her from being run over. And the film's trying to tell you because that he showed her the truth and told her the truth and because he was nice to her when he slept with her at that time that he's redeemed. It does. And then, like, as I said, there's a scene then where, like, Catherine's just being completely like, oh, she takes coke, oh, she uh, she writes in the diary and the diary's handed out to everyone at his funeral. You know, it's just like... I, I don't know, man. I just feel like I know she's not the, a good person, but she's stigmatized so much more. I do feel like it was allowed to stigmatize her more because she was a woman. I do feel like she, that is part of it. Personally. Yeah, maybe she got. So she got. Um, she was pretty much like thrown under the bus at the end of the film. Absolutely. But at the same time, she screwed. So she ended up like. So I think the problem is Sebastian had a kind of redemption arc. Whereas Catherine, no, that's what they tried to give him. They tried to give him a redemption arc they, by saying this is what he's changed. Me. Yeah, the film implies that he's redeemed, but I would argue very much so he's not. As you said, you're still going to jail, mate. <laughs> so. Yeah, the yeah, it it gives him a redemption arc, and what it does because Catherine screws Sebastian ultimately. So the the reason why it all all comes it all un, unfurls is because essentially. Sebastian says to Catherine, "Oh yeah, I've done it. I broke up with her." And she's like, "Oh God, you're pathetic!" Like, and she's with Ronald. I don't she's want to with, be here. What are you she's doing? She's with Ronald. She's like, I've, I, "I literally did this to see how pathetic you were." And so then she doubles down on how on how she, bad she, she is. She calls it. She says it's a game. Like she says the whole thing is a game. Yeah, to you are my little toy. You're a little toy yeah. that I like to play with. But That's exactly the word she uses. To be fair, the thing to take away from the film is like it's a film about horrible people. I think that's and and maybe maybe it is more self aware than I'm giving it credit for and like Reese Witherspoon as Annette is like the nicest purest character as is I think I feel bad for Ronald like Ronald does nothing wrong in the film he's just like moved from pillar to post and accused of doing things he's not doing yeah Ronald's just trying to play cello yeah he's, he's trying to just make a living he's trying to make a living and yeah. Cecile is also yeah yeah I think yeah it's, it is what it is anyway um, Kate reviews films writes in and she says how long. Does the Philippe Witherspoon relationship last if he doesn't die? Not long. Sorry, guys. Spoilers. He dies. He deserves it. Um, I don't know. Realistically, even even if he's reformed. He, right. I, okay. I, go for it. Carry on. Say, go, go on, John. Say, Give say, it. say he's, in inverted commas, reformed by yeah. the end of the film. 
I feel like Temptation's going to be knocking his way at some point. With the circles he's crowded around with, I feel like there's going to be a scheme or something he's going to get involved in at some point. It's going to go Pete Tong. I can't see him stay on the straight and narrow. It's like the classic one's a cheat, always a cheat. I just don't see it. I don't see it shifting around. Okay. Negative from Bridgewater. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say, I was going to say, um, are you saying people can never change? Um, oh, until think, you said once a once a cheat always a cheat. But listen, <laughs> look, no, listen, right? No, okay. Let me let me clarify that. Of course, people can change as they get older, but like he is still old enough to know his actions are wrong. And I suppose the film's trying to tell you by the end of it, he's he's changing his ways or whatever. But I just I feel like he's done so much wrong. It's very hard to feel like I should. Care right, I've got a end. different. I've got a different take. Go for it. Right, how old is Sebastian? Probably 19? like nineteen. Yeah. Okay. Younger. I don't know, mate. I never know anyway, with American stuff. Like, I'm really sorry. I never understand the school system. And yeah, it really throws me. But yeah, <laughs> he's quite naughty. He's quite naughty at 18. <laughs> what I would say, quite. Yeah, he's a spoiled little brat. They're all spoiled little brats. What I would say is that I think the relationship between Philippe is it Felipe or Philippe? I've been saying Philippe. Right. I think you said Felipe as well at some point. But so, it's, <laughs> do you know what? It is. It is what we ever we want it to be. Um, uh, Sebastian. Sebastian. Yeah, let's do go Sebastian, yeah. <laughs> I think Sebastian and Annette, their relationship does last, right? Hear me out. Hear me out, John. Oh, you, you're making faces. The reason why it lasts is this. In those moments of crisis, right? So the the end of the film, the end of the film is um, Ro- Ronald fighting with Sebastian basically because Sebastian slept with Cecile. Oh, this love, it's a love octagon. Do you know what I mean? It's not a triangle. It's, an, it's a lo- the love octagon. It's the love shack. Everyone is bonking everyone in Johnson. <laughs> Everyone's getting bonked, right? Um, but so, sorry, that's really throwing me off. Anyway, sorry. everyone's getting bonked. And the reason why I think it lasts is this. Ronald and Sebastian are having a fight. Annette tries to split up the fight. Annette gets pushed into the road. There's a car coming. Sebastian pushes Annette out of the way, gets totaled by the car, kills himself, right? He's dead. In those moments of crisis and life or death situations, I think people show who they really are and how they really feel. You're sounding like an apologist, but carry on. (laughs) No, no, I'm not. All, All I'm saying, no, no, no. It's an apologist for the relationship. Okay. Fine. I'm saying that I think he's very deeply, he deeply cares about her. And in that moment of crisis, in that moment of um, of almost death, he's, he's he, well. I see him on the level. I see him as at the level of Nate in Euphoria when he's like, I love Maddie. It's like, no, you don't. You're just a manipulative pain in the backside whose life is just, do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, he's yeah, redeemed. Well, he's well, done he, this. No, I, I think like, that's harsh. He's a horrible comparing person. Comparing him to Nate, it's pretty similar grounds. I mean, he doesn't batter people as much, but it's similar, similar vibes. Mm. Anyway, okay. I don't like them. No, they're they're, they're awful, awful <laughs> so people. They, yeah. That's, no, that's well, you, do, um, do you know what though? We're weirdly talking about this film. I actually kind of want to rewatch it though because it's kind of so. It's a really weird film because it's so captivating, even though it's really soap opery nonsense and like plot wise and the soundtrack's banging so i know i'm going to end up rewatching it even though i don't think it was particularly good 
I do. This think is a John. A, this is a John guilty pleasure going forward, it's, mate. It's a pure and like you know when you're like it's a pure six out of ten. This is legitimately a pure six out of ten with some good performances scattered throughout, like Reese Witherspoon's. But it's just like it is. It is a six out of ten. Yeah. The moral takeaway of it is not anything I'm I'm happy to stand by. But anyway, there well, we go. That's that's my. That's the film. Anyway, yeah. um, Caco.arietta writes in for the first time and says, is that Sarah Michelle Gellar? Yes. Caco, yes. Anyway, <laughs> Patch writes in. <laughs> Patch writes in with some, with some deep, deep questions. And I don't even know if I'm going to be able to answer. Um, was there a moment growing up that made you lose your childhood innocence? That's a tough one, John. Yeah, uh... I, I don't know. I thought of a few. I don't know. It's a difficult one. What to talk about on pod? I mean, I remember, I remember when one of my grandparents died. I remember my mum's like crying essentially, and I would have been your mum's. No, my mum. Sorry, and I, I was about to say her reaction, as in my mum's reaction. But oh right, yeah. Uh, I would have been. Oh god, I'm so terrible at maths. Two thousand. No, two thousand two. I would have been about ten. I remember it was the first time I'd heard someone cry like mourning a loss, and it's a different kind of cry. Anyone who knows, like it's it's different, right? There's like when someone ugh, this is getting really deep. Yeah, bringing yeah, it yeah. down. Okay, when someone dies, it's like you know, like if you hear a mother who's lost their child, or it's if like you a hear, hysterical, or, hysterical. It's like, it's like you can't control yourself. It's not like normal crying. It's just like it's like quite harrowing. I can remember hearing that, and at ten, like hearing that, that's just like your parents. From my experience, they hadn't ever really had any emotion like that at any point i'd never seen it so i think that probably for me was a moment of realizing and also because it was the first grandparent who died in my life so you remember that i remember going to the funeral and crying and being all upset and and just dealing with the fact that when you're younger you feel like everyone's always around and will always be around and then it is that realization of like life is finite and that's quite a scary thought at 10 um but yeah i'll be honest that's that's yeah, not mean to bring it down, but that's the one that sprung to mind for me. I haven't really got anything more lighthearted to give you, but that's the one that sprung to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I could definitely destroy the podcast um, by talking about uh, how I lost my childhood innocence, um, but I won't choose to do that on episode forty. No. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess uh, there's been quite a few moments in my life that have been. Uh, quite ridiculous but I will keep it nice and it was probably the moment maybe when I watched Casino for the first time Um, and that's probably as deep as I'll go so I remember uh, being at my nan's house um, and probably at the age of 13 maybe for some reason I was up really late Uh, Channel 4 was on Uh, Casino was on uh, I didn't know it was called Casino at the time. I just saw kind of Joe Pesci. You said this um, before. Have I? Yeah, you have. I know what you're going to say. Is it Joe Pesci having the swearing rant in the... Um... No, no, no. Oh, no. okay, sorry. Uh, Joe Pesci, like Robert De Niro, like um, it's like... I, I preferred Casino to Goodfellas for a long, long time. And um, I remember watching it. I was absolutely captivated. I was watching like so many films I never ever should have been anywhere near when I was younger like mm. um it was terrible really and, and I guess probably most of that uh, yeah most of those sort of like outworldly apart from family things that definitely did like taint me growing up and I remember the scene uh, spoilers for casino 1995 spoilers for casino 
1995. Uh, it might be 93, but sorry if it is. Um, yeah, there's a scene where Joe Pesci gets dragged out to the desert with his brother and he gets beaten up with baseball bats and buried alive. That is the bit um, I was talking about, but yeah. Oh, was on. it? Okay, yeah. sorry. Basically. Yeah, so... Yeah, and, and that was... I remember seeing that, and I was just like, Whoa. absolutely... Yeah, and the only other... I mean, the only other time was when I was really young and uh, was walking home with my nan um, up... Um, she lived in a village at the time, was walking home with my nan, and there was police outside the house, and it turned out, and my granddad had um, rammed a cop car, um, and he went to prison for the wow. only that i think he only went to prison for the night somehow i don't know why um, but i remember that I, f- I, f- I remember that was quite they tried to as a kid they tried to hide it from me happening at the yeah, time yeah, yeah. and then yeah there was a cop car that was all bent out of shape and i was like okay uh and so yeah and thinking back now that's so i, I guess moments like that and there's many many more that i definitely can't go into but probably those so patch thank you for your really deep question and there you go and that's it You've had your loss. You've had Johnny and I's loss of innocence. We've 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 lost our innocence. We've got none left. Um, I mean, we haven't quite lost as much as Sebastian. Nasty, nasty man. Um, but that's us done. Uh, as always, you can find us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Um, you can find us on Spotify, Movies in a Podshell. You can find me on Instagram at Movies in a Podshell because we synced now. You can find John at jcb.video. And the next pod we're doing is intellectual sci-fi as coined by our very own John. Oof. And we've decided finally it's time to do Upgrade. Lee Wanell's Upgrade, one of my favourite films, obviously. John's seen it already. I've seen it a few times and we're going to see it another time. And we're going to be pairing that with Arrival, a film that I didn't really like that much. John, you like Arrival? I loved Arrival when I first saw it. I'm looking forward to watching it again. Mm, I found it weird because everyone has Arrival right at the top of their intellectual sci-fi list that coined by John. Oh, one thing to note before we did go. We were featured on the top 60 podcasts. Oh, top 60 podcasts in the UK. Number 11, um, baby. Number 11. Number 11, baby. And do you know what? We're happy to be featured there because, I, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I was I was happy to be uh, to be featured anywhere near the list then um, this was a this was a list by feedspot so um you should go check out feedspot um i did say we listen th- this was this was we got featured and i said i would shout them out just as a thank you but so, also genuinely guys thank you guys for sticking with us and downloading i mean we are genuinely this is episode 40 which is mad in itself we've done 40 of these which is we've done 40 but, we've done 40 but, and, we're, and but yeah also people have actually written in for 40 episodes I remember People... at the start, it was such a struggle. I remember like we really struggled for questions. We'd get like one or two if we were lucky. And we used to we get nothing. Get... Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't get much. And it used to be such a struggle. Whereas now, to be fair, most week, like most, not, we're not weekly pod, but most points we record, we get, we really, there's so many questions to actually go through and stuff. And like, it's so great because we can visibly see different people listening and it's great. And we, and we really appreciate it. And having I, so. I, I'll be honest. I, yeah, yeah. Before before we leave, John's got a pen in his hand, so I don't know what John's doing. John's doing John's doing some big time stuff with his pen in his hand because he's um yeah he's big time baby. Um, I I thought it was mad. I originally started the pod. We started the pod. Uh, we we talked about it for a while. I just said to John like, shall we do it? He said yeah. I was like, I don't really care if no one listens. Like I didn't I didn't really care at the beginning. Like I really do care now, of course. 
It's because, a good job because we didn't have many at the start. Because we we but we're growing. We're genuinely Absolutely. growing. We're genuinely growing. We're genuinely being recognised. We've had some fantastic guests, and we're hoping to have more. Um, yeah, it's it's genuinely amazing. My so our, my pipe dream for the podcast is I was thinking episode one hundred. If I feel like we can do it, I want to episode one hundred. I want to have a live show, like you know, one of those live yeah, recorded shows in a theatre. In in a small kind of theatre, yeah, like I don't know how many, I don't know how many seats we'll we'll fill, but that's that's the that's the dream. I've got loads of ideas for it. That's that's what I want. Episode one hundred. I want to have a live show. We'll stream it live. We'll record it live, and that'll be episode one hundred. Then we'll have actual people come in, and it won't be to make money. I don't want to make no money off this. Like, well, obviously I do. Like, that's, that's I'm talking rubbish. I want to be a millionaire. I want to quit my job. Trust but, me, you don't, you don't enter podcasting to make money, as we've learned. And yeah, and, unless you're yeah, Joe Rogan. Um, True. But the I, I wouldn't do. We wouldn't do it to make money. We'd do it. We'd, we'd, the ticket price would be enough to cover where we're doing it, and that would be it for episode 100. All of our favorite people in one place, live. Let's do that. John, what are you doing with that pen? Just enlighten me. Um, I've got <laughs> some ideas for some other films I wanted to do, and I'm writing them down right now. But. You'll be glad to Excellent. know, for intellectual sci-fi guys, we're not doing Star Trek The Motion Picture or 2001 A Space Odyssey. Which... 2001 was banded about. There's a very, very high chance we're going to have a guest for episode 40, but we'll we'll, we'll let you know when updated. that happens. Yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for sticking around, as always. In a bit. See ya. Bye. Bye.